Hello and welcome to Deep Thoughts, Shallow Plots. My name's Erica, and I like to watch horror movies. My name's Katie, and I like to overanalyze things. So, Katie, what are we going to overanalyze today? Today, we are beginning our Grindhouse double feature with Planet Terror. Uh, 2007, directed by Robert Rodriguez. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, so, yeah, this is meant to be a, a double feature episode. We're going to talk about Planet Terror first, because in the original release of the double feature, it was shown first. Mm-hmm. Um, but next time, we'll talk about Death Proof. Yes. Um, and so, obviously, we'll talk about Death Proof next time, so, like, we don't need to do it so much right now, um, but I'm very excited. Yes. Uh, I love Death Proof. <laughs> Probably one of my, up there, yeah. one of my favorite movies um yeah on record now saying that we like death proof more than planet terror and you know planet and Terror's... we will fight about it <laughs> oh, yeah we'll fight anybody who wants to fight us on that um yeah. i mean planet terror is a ton of fun yeah it's fun it's it's gross it's gory it's a little campy you know i would say it sets out to do what it wants to do which is be a grindhouse it executes its vision um and i like death proof more <laughs> but it doesn't matter because we're going to talk about Planet Terror. We're going to talk about Planet Terror. <laughs> which we like and which stars our girl. Oh, yeah. Friend of the pod. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rose McGowan in her second appearance. Yeah. Uh, soon to be third. Soon to she's, be third. Keep it coming, Rose. Because she's also in Death Proof. Uh, what other Rose McGowan movies could we watch? Like, we could spin Jawbreaker I, as a horror movie. We could spin Jawbreaker. Uh, what else? It's so hard because we'll, we'll talk about, like, she really did get blacklisted for and, a while, yeah. And her career really was kind of at a dead end. Mm-hmm. Um, so, should we talk about like for the uninitiated, what Planet Terror is even about? Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, just to give a quick little scootaladoo about it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, a scootaladoo, a uh, synopsis. <laughs> is that okay? Yeah, uh-huh. um, it's you know. Small, what, Texas border town, the military done fucks up, or do they, or do they do it on purpose, releases some sort of chemical weapon that starts turning people into zombies, and say la vie, man. (laughs) You know how it goes. You know how it goes. Um, Yeah, there's a biochemical weapon outbreak, basically, um, that's turning people into zombies, but not everyone. There are some survivors. Yes, some people are immune. So I... I've been thinking about how do I understand this film as a text? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just my own self watching this movie. Yeah. And what do I need to understand it more deeply? Yeah. So um, I feel like I was coming to this movie because I'd already seen it before. You hadn't. Nope. Never seen it before. Um, so I'd already seen it before. I was familiar, you know, with Grindhouse. I'm, I have a passing familiarity with Robert Rodriguez. Obviously, I'm much more familiar with Quentin Tarantino mm-hmm. as a director and you know filmmaker um and then watching it and kind of being like there's obviously like this movie is full of references right and so like what are these references maybe understanding that better will help me understand this film as as a text better right right? because the whole conceit of their double feature that they Mm -hmm. got together to make this is quentin tarantino and robert rodriguez Mm -hmm. um was that they wanted to sort of bring back the idea of the like double feature grindhouse yeah, thing. and like a a time gone by experience of like a a movie theater going experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and you can see that specifically in how it all looks, kind of like 
what's the word for when the film is all kind of dirty? Like grainy. Grainy. Yeah. yeah it all yeah. looks kind of grainy. And they're like missing real jokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they made a bunch of fake trailers at the beginning. And a couple of which have actually been made into feature like yeah. films. Yeah. Like Machete. Machete and Machete Kills. It's yeah. got two films. And then I think they also was wanted. Was it Hobo with a Gun? Hobo with a Shotgun. Yeah. yeah shotgun. I think which was, uh, I think, a Canadian production. But yeah. Um. So what you do we just want to talk about like our initial kind of impressions and of the characters? characters and the plot yeah. and the the fun zombie destroying romp that is this film yeah uh so we already talked about rose mcgowan yeah who else is in this cast we've got a lovely cameo by bruce willis that oh, was right. a lot of fun yeah we've got uh freddie rodriguez We've got Marley Shelton, who plays uh, Dr. Dakota Block, yeah. who I know we probably both have some feelings about. Yeah. We've got two actors who are on Lost. We do. We have Naveen Andrews. Yeah. Who plays Abby in yeah. this. My mother's number one crush, Naveen Andrews. I mean, yeah. <laughs> he cute. Uh, who else is in Lost? Uh, JT's actor. Oh, uh, Jeff Fahey? Yeah. Who yeah, is he on Lost? Some guy. <laughs> okay. um, we've got, oh, Fergie. Fergie. Fergie How did we not start with Fergie? Uh, and she does, I would say, a great job. She does a pretty good job. She yeah. does great. Oh, Her jo- little line about how she's going to save some lives. I'm like, you are going to save lives, Fergie. Then she doesn't. But, but she I doesn't. believed her. Oh, that she was going to save the lives of, of Marley and, and Tony. Yeah. Or sorry, Dakota, uh, Dakota and Tony. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, and of course, uh, Josh Brolin. Oh, yeah. Who I'm a fan of. I think he's a pretty good actor. I really enjoyed him in No Country for Old Men, which yeah. would have come out like literally he, just right after this. He apparently got some help to do his audition tape from like the crew on this movie because he was oh, for auditioning no for, for Old it. Men. Yeah, because oh, wow. he was auditioning for it while they were doing this movie. That's awesome. They, I guess they didn't want to give him an audition. For No Country for Old Men. They were like, nah, he wouldn't be right for it. Like, we're going to give an audition. So he was oh. like, you need to make me a really good audition type. Well, they were wrong because he, he did was amazing. Great, yeah. yeah, he was great. Yeah, so, um, and so we have this movie to thank for that. Yeah, and he's a very different character in this film and like really good at, at being like a complete dick. Yeah, no, yeah. he's a good villain. Yeah, he's a good villain. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, first of all, I was just like absolutely blown away. And I know it's a movie, but I was just totally blown away by the fact that Rose McGowan's hair and makeup stays absolutely immaculate through uh, a car crash. Yeah. Her losing a leg. Yeah. Uh, even before that being run off the side of the road by. But into like a trash can. <laughs> and getting like a big like three inch piece of glass stuck in yeah. her leg. Right. Um, losing her leg. All of that stuff. Yeah. Hair and makeup, absolutely immaculate. Yeah. Though noticeably, mm-hmm. Dakota, our doctor, uh-huh. they like make it a point that her makeup is all runny and smeary. Oh, yes. And she looks all like she's been crying a bunch. And, That's like, true. They yeah. smear her up. They do. But then like, and then over the course of the film, they like fix it again. Yeah. Um, yeah like, and it's like a very artful messing up the yeah, makeup. Yeah, yeah. It's like how when people get scars that are like right on their cheekbones, you know, it's like, oh, you're disheveled, but in a sexy way. <laughs> um so like of the characters in this film who would you say is your favorite oh um yeah no it's got to be the iconic cherry yeah cherry Cherry darling Darling. yeah and it's funny because when she meets back up with ray Mm -hmm. 
uh, at the the Bone Shack, yes. the barbecue place. Um, he does mention like, "What name are you going by now?" Mm-hmm. Right, and she says, "Cherry Darling," and he says, "Like that's a stripper name," and she's like, "It's a go-go dancer's name. There's a difference." Yes, but honestly, Cherry Darling to me, that's a drag queen name well it's a thin line of course yes and i because it's all performances of femininity yeah yeah it's all like exaggerating femininity right yeah with these sort of names that drag queens use and that go-go dancers and strippers use right yeah um so we kind of have i feel like in this film we see two parallel relationships Mm -hmm. right we see cherry and ray and we have the the doctor's block Yes, the doctor's block. <laughs> Dakota and Bill. Bill. Yep. Yeah, 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 Dr. Bill Block. Um, and, you know, I, I think their relationships are similar in some mm-hmm. way, but yeah, not in other yeah. ways. Abuse is such an important thing in this movie mm-hmm. because it's like, this is like a zombie movie. Yes, Like, that is. is what it is. It's yeah. a zombie movie. That's what they set out to do. But I just feel like the real threat comes from abusive men. Who's the real monster here? Right? right? Yeah. yeah. All of the real threats that are That makes like, me think of, have you seen any of the Cloverfield movies? No, I have not. They're good. We'll add them to the list. Yeah, we'll add them to the list. Um, And the sequel, 10 Cloverfield Lane, it's just like such a fantastic film that totally plays on the like, what's the real danger? Who's the real monster here? Mm. You know? Uh, spoiler alert, it's human beings. Yeah, um, yeah. I yeah. feel like that's out of play here because it's like, despite like, yes, all the women in this film are threatened by these zombies. Yeah, on and off. Like the scariest scenes for them are like Dakota getting threatened by her husband, mm-hmm. by her abusive husband right. in the hospital, and Being it's like stabbed with her own needles. Yeah, several times. Yeah, and getting threatened. Yeah, and, and then becoming incapacitated. Yeah. Well, well, she she figures out a way, but like she's at a severe disadvantage. Yeah, because she can't use her hands. Because her hands are offline for. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. It's meant to be several hours. Right. Yeah yeah. 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 So we have that. And then like the scariest scene for Cherry is when she almost gets raped. Oh, yeah. By Quentin Tarantino, whose whose uh, credited name in this film is rapist number one. Yeah. Which honestly, I appreciate that. That they Instead didn't bother of, giving him a name. Don't give him a name. Yeah. I don't care what his rank is because yeah. he's supposed to be yeah, like yeah. that, you know. Uh, could they call him like Sergeant Rapist or yeah. something? I, I don't know ranks. I, I don't know. know where Sergeant is. Yeah, I, don't I don't know. I don't either. But, anyway. but it doesn't matter. It doesn't fuck matter. fuck him. Yeah, yeah. Rapist number one. Yeah. Yeah. Love that for them. Yeah. So we have all these zombies, but like all these men who are like actually the monster. Right. So we have the very clearly abusive relationship between the doctors. Yes. Where Dr. Bill is being abusive to his wife. And then we have Cherry and El Rey. El Rey. Yeah, so can I just, uh, super quick, because yeah. uh, I'm just, do you have any insight as to why Ray is spelt the way it's spelt in this film? W-R-A-Y? I, I think they were trying to be a little tongue-in-cheek with it, because it is, uh, what is it? A homophone. Homophone? Yeah, homophone. For El Rey, El R E Y, which means king yeah, in Spanish. Yeah, that's what I thought. And then I was like, oh, but it's spelt strangely. Yeah. And honestly, what it evokes to me is like a ray of sunshine. Yeah. But not a stingray. Not a stingray. But hold on. <laughs> a ray of sunshine. Isn't that just R-A-Y? Yeah. Gosh darn it. Okay. Um, yeah, maybe it's just like a little I think play. it's supposed to be yeah. kind of, yeah, a little play tongue yeah. in cheek thing. I think also Robert Rodriguez, he has also like some ray. sort of company that's like El Rey or something. Oh, okay. Also, Ray with the W-R- a Y. Um, I mean, that's like that's a last name people have. Like maybe yeah. it's his last name. Yeah, yeah. We don't really know. I mean, that's the other thing is that we don't really know a lot about El Rey because his entire backstory is part of a missing reel. Yes. Sort of joke where like we come back from a missing reel with the 
sheriff being like, thanks for telling me all that, El Rey. Yeah, yeah, If yeah. I had known that you were that, El Rey. The El Rey. Yeah. And then we just have to be like, oh, And they spend <laughs> the first half of the movie talking about how uh, Ray shouldn't have guns. Yeah. Like, you shouldn't have guns. You're not allowed to have them with your history. What's that history? We don't ever get to find no, out, no. right? Um, which is, you know, kind of nice when I actually kind of like it when, you know, a film really intentionally says, like, I'm, we're not going to tell you this. Mm-hmm. Fill it in yourself, right? Instead of leaving it, like, vague and allowing for, like, you know, people to kind of fight about what it means. It's just, like, it's not in there. It's not in there intentionally. Just... Yep. A missing reel you move you, on yeah have fun with your imagination you yeah know? but yeah, yeah el rey he's an interesting character and his relationship with a lot of people but cherry mm-hmm. specifically right here yeah it's supposed to be our like main romantic relationship in this film yeah but i think we both got it's like the one sex scene we get yeah yeah which is also a missing reel well yeah. it's part of the same missing it's, reel. It's, it's all part of the same joke yeah yeah yeah. Very good. yeah um yeah i remember when you and i were watching it together because it takes place at the bone shack mm-hmm. right and cherry's already there and el rey shows up and i remember you said like does it look like she wants to talk right now <laughs> yeah <laughs> but I mean, then it turned out that they already knew they each knew other. They knew each other. Right, yeah, yeah. And I was still like, does it look like she wants to get to know you again? Yeah, like she wants to know what you're up to right now. Yeah. yeah. No, and then we find out that she was the one who left him. Yes. But then he has to give her a lot of crap about it because she took his jacket with him. Right, right, right. But then it turns out it's because he had an engagement ring in that jacket for yes. her because it was going to be two against the world, baby. Right. Yeah. That's And it's interesting because, like, El Rey says several times, like, I looked for it for two weeks. Yeah. Right. Um, but we don't know how long Sherry has had the jacket. Yeah. And it's interesting. It's like, how long have you had that jacket, girl? Because, like, you haven't gone through the pockets. Like, you haven't found it yet. Yeah. Like, I, right. I wondered that, too. Okay. Because it, it seems happens. like it's kind of been a while since they last saw each other. It does. Yeah. It's like, she's got a new name. Yeah. Yeah. Like he asked her if she ever became a doctor. Right. But it's just so funny because the ring is also just like kind of underwhelming. The, the box is a little beat up. The but ring you know, is, you know, it's fine. It seemed fitting for like the means of these people. Probably. Like he yeah. has his little Ray's wrecker yeah, truck. Yeah. That's like his a kill dozer truck. Yeah, whatever. That is just like a fucking. Is it like a, a tow, tow truck? truck. Is tow it just truck. a tow truck? Yeah. Okay, I wasn't sure because it was the wrecker. So I was like, is he actually wrecking things with it? Or is he getting things that are wrecked? Yeah. I... Uh, this is confusing, El Rey. <laughs> <laughs> I get you're doing the w- WR R- thing, but like. <laughs> right. Um, and and it's interesting because like, it, that's actually a really interesting scene where, you know, because he, where he's just like, check the engraving and it's like two against the world, you know. And then like, Several moments later, not very long after that, he, like, asks Cherry, like, why did you leave? And she says, you didn't believe in us. Yeah. And I was like, okay, so then how are you two against the world, El Rey? Right. You know? No, and then the other red flag that comes earlier in that scene from what they talk about is when he's talking about the jacket. She's like, well, are you going to go on another one of your, like, psycho-obsessive controlling rants about it? Yeah. And I'm like... His, his, his psycho-obsessive controlling, controlling rants, rants, you say? Yeah. That sounds, uh, mm. Mm, I have questions. Right. And So, yeah, this yeah. is somebody who she felt like didn't believe in her. Yeah. Seems to kind of belittle all of her goals. Even in the current day, when they meet again, she's yeah. like, I'm going to be a comedian. Yeah. I've got stand-up gigs lined up. Yeah. He's like, oh, but you're not funny. 
And he she, like says multiple times, you're not funny. Even And then she's like, you're a dick. And then she goes on to make several fantastic jokes. So many jokes. And not yeah. only that, but multiple other characters, JT yes. and her boss. Yes. Yeah. I forget his name. Eh. Spike or Mark or something. Eh. <laughs> you know, Spike or Mark. A go-go dancer club owner guy name. Uh-huh. But yeah, no, they're all like, you should be a comedian. You're funny. You're, you're really funny. funny. Yeah, yeah. Like everybody else but, who like just meet her, but are like ready to believe in her. Is it? like you're funny because like the because she is like a woman who is like not taking any shit and like standing up for herself and like telling people to fuck off you know Mm -hmm. and it's like you're hilarious like you're obviously meaning this as a joke you know well i mean jt says it after her shit-eating grin joke yeah that was which is a really good joke that's a good one yeah see this yeah it's a shit-eating grin I like how she does the smile like very quickly and it yeah. goes away. It's like, you know what that was? You know, like, yeah. oh, please, please inform me. What was that? Yeah. No, um, it's a good setup. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah. there's some red flags from El Rey. I have more to say about Ray and Cherry, but I think it's interesting with the, the doctor's block. It's interesting because, yeah, there's definitely an abuse dynamic in their relationship, but they are also strangely and unusually equal in their power. Right, like they're both doctors. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, Dakota is a anesthesiologist. Which girl is, is getting paid. Is intense. Anesthesiology yeah. is an intense field, right? Yeah. No. Um, you didn't, yeah, you can't get that wrong. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know they're like working the same shift. You know, mm-hmm. like they're working together. It really seems like in in that instance they're pretty like. You know, it's it's not like uh, one has a, a significantly greater income than another mm-hmm. or um, other like obligations in their life or anything like that so yeah and then they have a son yeah yeah that's the thing about abuse it can be so like insidious yeah and not obvious yeah yeah and then I was when I was researching this it was like looking into it it was really interesting how much of the and I didn't write down any of these article names um (laughs) that like that we're kind of going over like a plot synopsis of the film, right? You know, um, pretty surface level stuff, nothing like particularly deep. Otherwise I would have remembered the name of the article and referenced it. Um, but it was interesting how many I came across that like refer to Dakota block and that character as like, unfaithful and like kind of giving her like a psycho bisexual spin because I, I do. Yeah. She does. She is trying to leave bill yeah for fergie fergie obviously i mean who wouldn't (laughs) yeah right uh she knows about cars yeah um early 2000s lesbian fergie who knows about cars um (laughs) hello uh and yeah so it was really interesting and i was like don't put this on dakota yeah like bill's a fucking asshole yeah no he is straight up abusive she is fully like afraid of him yeah she is leaving because she is afraid of him not because she fell in love with somebody else and he's also very weird around their kid right because like when they're getting ready that like evening to go to work and he like tells him to like pray for daddy that there won't be any dead bodies you know Mm -hmm. and i was like that's a weird thing to ask your kid to do also you're a physician like death is an aspect of your job i don't know But, I mean, you hope it won't be. Yeah, of course, yeah. So, and I guess that's it. I mean, I think it's supposed to be. It could be. There's a way that that could be a sort of nice thing, I guess. I mean, it's, yeah. Yeah, but. Of just sort of, like, hope that your day goes well. And yeah, that you're yeah, able yeah. to treat everybody and it's yeah. all great, you but know. But, like, literally asking your your young son, like. To pray for no dead no bodies. No dead bodies. Like, okay. Yeah. 
that's weird. It but is okay. weird. Um, and what what really gets me is like, you know, when uh, the hospital is like overrun with patients who are showing symptoms of this thing, yeah. like the gross boils yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, all that stuff. And uh, something, I don't remember exactly what happens that sets it off, but Josh Brolin's character is like, fucking Wednesdays. Yeah. <laughs> Are you trying to tell me that this is something you've experienced before, <laughs> that, like, this is not completely out of the ordinary for yeah. you and you're not, like, freaking out a little bit? Like, your your response is, ugh, Wednesdays. Right. No, the one time that we see him lose his cool, actually, uh-huh. is when they find Fergie's dead body. Yes. We will keep referring to her as Fergie, Fergie instead yeah. of whatever her she, character's name is. Uh, I don't know what her she definitely has one. Is, it's probably just Stacy because uh, she <laughs> is because she is credited as Stacy Ferguson right, yeah. by her name. But I'm pretty sure her character does have a name. Tammy. Tam. Anyway, his one time when he loses his cool is when he sees Fergie, aka Tammy's dead body. And that's when he has the little thermometer in his mouth that and he's been breaks. sort of chewing on yeah. and it, that he uses to like see how he's doing because he clearly has like a temper. Yeah. As I don't, in like he gets angry and violent. I don't understand what like a mercury thermometer is going to like what information that will convey to him. Yeah. It's supposed to be telling him. He says it's to tell him if he's keeping his cool or not. Okay. But like, don't you think like. That blood pressure would be better for that. Would yeah. make more sense. But for it's that. so we can have the great scene where he sees Fergie's body and then yeah. he bites down on it and there's glass in his mouth. Yeah, and then gross drool. But yeah, yeah whatever. But I just yeah, it's interesting. Like all of the stuff in the hospital, it's fine. But realizing his wife is probably still cheating on him, right, is the thing where he freaks out. He's clearly a guy who has, yeah, anger control issues. Yeah, and that he knows it. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, that's always a good start, but yeah. it's a start, right? And then you need to, like, go from there, right? Oh, my God. Another mm-hmm. moment of him being kind of an asshole, though also more understandable. But they do it pretty early on, I think. When they realize that it's some sort of infectious disease, mm-hmm. I think before it even becomes, like, a zombie problem, yeah. the other doctor who's with him is like, um, anything you recommend? And he's like, mm, self-preservation? Self-preservation comes to mind. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, like, well, uh, you're not wrong. Yeah. But yep. also you're a doctor. Yeah. This is your job. Yeah. When you come across a disease, I'm pretty sure that there are like steps that you take as yeah. a doctor. Quarantining. Like, I don't know. What I found really interesting is that in those hospital scenes, it's like obvious the shit is going down very quickly. Yeah. And like things are evolving rapidly. And like the hospital workers just still seem to be like keeping their cool. For a while. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? Like, everybody's coming in with these gross boils and, like, you just, like, had to cut that guy's arm off. I know. Like, no, immediate calls to the CDC. Come on. Yeah, what are we doing? This is, like, an issue. It's obviously pre-COVID, obviously. And I was like, where are their masks? Where are the gowns? Where are the, you know... I mean, even then. I Where's mean, the PPE? Call the CDC. <laughs> What's happening right now? I mean, I'm pretty sure we've always had protocols for, like, infectious diseases breaking out in hospitals. Yeah, I guess so. Hospitals have always been prepared for that. Apparently not this hospital in a small town in Texas. Yeah, I, I guess that's kind of fair. Yeah. Um, and then we also have a lot of law enforcement and authority figures in this film. Yes. Right? So we've got, like. We have our sheriff. We've got the sheriff and several deputies. Yes. Yeah. Um, a lot of which are just kind of cannon fodder. Yeah. And then we also have, obviously, everybody in the, the military. Yeah. Because they're meant to be near a military base, right? And so, as far as, like, the relationships between the men and the women, right? There's, like, a lot of abuse dynamics. But, like, it's not that much better 
the dynamics no. between the men. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure that like the men in this film don't know how to be in like any type of relationship, like romantic, platonic, yeah. familial, employment wise. Like yeah. they don't know how to do any sort of relationship without there being some sort of like power play dynamic going on. Right. Like, Which there always has to be somebody sort of struggling against the other, right. or somebody over the other. Which to me is like totally exemplified so beautifully in like really one of the first scenes with uh, Naveen Andrews' character, yes. Abby. Abby, his like obsession with like collecting other men's testicles I mean, yeah. and keeping them in a jar for Ooh, his yeah. collection, and like it's just so obvious that like this is like there's no other way for me to understand that as some like toxic masculinity bullshit right yeah yeah it's like a way of gaining or keeping the control or domination over other men yeah right yeah emasculating with yeah by castrating people who like fall out of favor with him because like that's what the guy who's like balls get cut off it's because he accidentally let some of the subjects escape he's like I can't remember exactly what he says, but he's like, I'm sick of you. Yeah. You know, I don't he's like, like you yeah, anymore. You were useful when you were doing your job well, but now you're not even doing your job right. right. And then they cut off his testicles and then Abby pretty quickly after shoots him. Yeah. And so it's like, that's a really interesting order of operations. <laughs> Why castration first, then murder? To be fair, I think he says, we'll castrate you and then maybe you'll get a live. If I'm satisfied with that. Oh, okay. I think he has something like that. Okay. But where, where he's basically like, if you do it yourself, I might let you live. Oh, To, like, encourage him to cut off his own balls. Oh, yeah. Another, like, kind of power play control yeah. move. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Well, and know. to be fair, the situation changes because he sort of reveals or lets slip that they have more of that toxin. Mm-hmm. which I think Abby was trying to keep under wraps because that's why Abby and the lieutenant get into it, why they start fighting. Is because the lieutenant wants all of the toxin. Right. Because his his company, whatever, um, has been infected. And, like, the only way to keep them from becoming crazy zombie things yeah. is, like, a, like a small dosage, like, constant exposure yeah. to to the drug. Right? Yeah. And in his, his little villain monologue, kind of closer to the end, mm-hmm. the other thing he says is that, like, it sort of was the plan to release it in some sort of, like, small town that people don't really care about. To see who ends up being immune to it, because then they can find the cure in whoever's immune to it. Mm -hmm. So, like, the idea was that Abby would be able to sort of study the people who were immune and then find a cure for Muldoon and all of his little soldier boys. Right. So, like, he's doing it all for his men. Yeah, right. That he, like, feels like he has some sort of of responsibility for because he's the lieutenant. Yeah. And I, again, still don't understand right, yeah. military But rankings. he's the top of them. Yeah, he's the top top. And yeah. that's relevant. Yeah. But also, I don't know, your men are all fucking rapists, so <laughs> let them fucking die. Yeah, right. And uh, love the, the reference to uh, having assassinated Osama bin Laden. Yeah, just uh, throwing it in there. Four years before he actually dies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good stuff. Um, so at least for me, like, it's pretty obvious that everything in this film is like a reference. Yeah. Right. And I'm just going to go ahead and quote a completely unrelated podcast, the RuPaul's Drag Race podcast I listen to, All Right, Mary, 
Mm-hmm. Shout out to Johnny and Colin. Um, <laughs> and uh, Colin specifically, but I think it's kind of a, a thing of the entire podcast is like, you know, obviously with drag, there's so many references, mm-hmm. right? And like reference points and how that's so important to like the continuation of the culture of drag. You know, what he says a lot is like, if we don't make these references, we lose these references, right? Like this is a part of our history and we need to keep it alive, mm-hmm. right? Um, so there's a ton of references in here and I want to talk about them and the significance of them and what purpose they serve but do we want to do literary corner first yeah I think because we're going to start throwing around the word pastiche a bunch so we should probably we're going to have a little literary corner (laughs) where I just sort of tell you what pastiche is and how it gets used in literature and art and other forms of yeah I'll be honest before this like I had heard the word pastiche but like I couldn't tell you what it meant yeah Yeah. it's French by way of the Italian oh fair enough yeah coming from like little meat pies oh and like other kind of pastries like that that have a bunch of different types of fillings in them oh yeah interesting i feel like in the past when i've heard the word pastiche it's been used with negative connotation yeah which is interesting yeah okay i'm gonna let you tell me about pastiche right well it's like kind of similar to a parody which i think also kind of has some negative connotations i mean it's the sincerest form of flattery Uh, yeah apparently really I mean, sort of all of these things where we're like taking from other people. But I think it's sort of considered to be unoriginal, maybe, which is why it gets some flack. All of these sort of like illusions and these intertextual stuff get some flack for maybe not being as original as some other things because you're sort of taking parroting or you're taking up, yeah. you know, that it's like because it's not original, it doesn't count as like a real new work of art. You know what this is immediately reminding me of what? is like basically the entire history of hip hop. And the use of sampling. Yeah. Sampling of different songs and, like, using, like, the hook Mm -hmm. to then, like, rap over or, like, create something new out of. Yeah. And getting a lot of that, like, response of, like, well, it's like, you're not even, you're just taking somebody else's Mm -hmm. thing. Like, what what are you doing that's new, you know? Yeah. It's that that same thing. Yeah. And like parody, like prestige, I think another thing that makes them maybe why you've heard sort of negative connotations is also that it tends to be a little bit more, like, humorous. Like, parody is very right. much intentionally meant to be sort of, like, poking fun at something. Right, yes, yeah. Pastiche is sort of the other side of it, where it is, you know, making those references kind of in the same way, and in this very sort of joyful, fun, jocular way. <laughs> but okay. it's, like, honoring it rather than mocking it. Yeah. Is sort of what pastiche is. That's, like, what their big difference between parody and pastiche is. Because oh, okay. they can be pretty similar. But one is, like, but I love this thing, and that's why I'm, like, taking these pieces from it. Whereas mm-hmm. parody can be a little more, like, mocking. Sure. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? But they like both a, Like be... a satire, kind of? Yeah. Got it. Yeah, okay. yeah. So it can be, like, you're incorporating something specifically from another work of art. It can also just be that you're sort of celebrating a whole genre by making something in that genre. Absolutely. Or, like, another writer's writing style. It can also be sometimes when you have a bunch of artists who are sort of like working together, all putting in their own little bits that are all kind of different. That can also be considered a pastiche because it is just sort of like this idea of like blending these different styles together and sort of taking these different pieces together. Yeah. Well, that's like exactly what this movie is. That's exactly what this movie is. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. And yeah. Death Proof for that matter. But yeah. We'll get to that next week. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and also because I used the word intertextuality a little bit ago, it's something that we talk about in our Cabin in the Woods episode, our very first episode. I talk all about intertextuality. Can you just like remind me in like yeah. a couple couple sentences? Yeah. No, it's just how one work of art refers to another work of art. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah That's yeah. all it is. The interplay between two texts. Okay. Intertextuality. 
That's fair. And, you know, we talked about how, like, pastiche and parody are both examples of intertextuality. And I think in Cabin in the Woods, I talked a lot about illusions. Yes. But, like, the difference between that is that, like, an illusion is just sort of, like, a passing reference right. that, like, you can kind of blink and miss. Or, like, if you're not familiar with what's being referenced, you might not notice that it's a reference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, like, a pastiche is a full recreation in some way. So, like, it doesn't matter as much if the audience knows what the reference is because you're recreating it entirely. <laughs> So, like, they're going to get all of the beats of it because they're seeing it all over again right here. Okay. Yeah. You know? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I mean, I do have some literary examples. Sure. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead by Uh, Tom Stoppard. Yes. Right? A pastiche of Hamlet uses some actual lines from Hamlet. Uh Uh-huh. And it definitely has, like, a kind of humorous tone. I don't know if you're familiar with David Lodge. No. He has a lot of novels, actually, where he sort of takes direct styles from other famous authors. Um the big one is the British Museum is falling down where he'll have like a character say something about Mrs. Dalloway. And then uh, the next chapter will be, I mean, the next paragraph will all be written sort of like in the style of Virginia Woolf. Uh, you know, he'll do things like that. Uh-huh. Um, I've never read Cloud Atlas. No. Are you familiar with it? Okay. No. But David sorry. Mitchell. Okay. Apparently it just swings wildly. It's like, it's a period drama and then it's a mystery and then it's Kafka-esque <laughs> and then it's a space opera dystopia and it like goes all over the place. Wow. Okay. A more, I guess, modern... One that I feel like everybody would ha- know because the movie just came out uh, kind of a while ago now, but not too long ago, would be Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. that author, uh, Seth Graham Smith, Okay, I think is his name. The book full on has passages written by Jane Austen that he put into his book. Right. And then his own passages that are zombies. <laughs> and then the other thing you can do with pastiche, rather than doing like specific characters or like a specific world, a specific story, you can just sort of have a whole genre. That you're sort of doing a send-up of? Of course, yeah. Um, Quentin Tarantino actually is famous for doing pastiches. Oh, yeah. Like, Kill Bill is just westerns plus kung fu. So I think then all of this is just to say that Planet Terror is a big old grindhouse exploitation film pastiche. pastiche. And you're going to tell me I'm all gonna about it. I'm going to tell you it. all about it, yeah. Because so, I don't know. <laughs> so speaking of, because you were throwing around the word, word intertextuality, right? Yeah. Um, and we've thrown around the term grindhouse, but... Um, what is that? What, mean? what the heck is that? Because um, I actually think it's my understanding the full title of this film is Grindhouse Presents Planet Terror. I think you're right. Right. So Grindhouse, what is it? Right. Um, so basically, it's a style of theater, mainly showing like really low budget horror films um, or exploitation films. Oh, like movie theater. Like a movie theater. <laughs> oh, yeah. I had a moment like... where I was like, Grindhouse were originally plays. Oh, <laughs> how did they do all of the blood? <laughs> because theater yes i get it yes because your definition of theater that's fair no yeah but yeah movie theaters movie gotcha, theaters, gotcha. Yes. i'm on board um so and basically the kind of idea where it gets its name grindhouse is like they have a grind policy of just showing movies like back to back like just oh. stuffing them in there right um, oh i thought it was because like the characters are going through like a grinder <laughs> oh like they're just killing characters right and left i mean that's fair uh yeah. but no it was like kind of a film programming strategy that dates back as far as I could tell the 1920s right just like continually showing films like really cheap ticket prices Mm. um that usually kind of it's actually not too far off from the way the movie theaters run today where like you go see a matinee is cheaper you go see primetime it's a little bit more expensive right and also just the general idea of there being movies kind of constantly yeah playing yeah but that's because we have so many more movies now that's true right so at the time a lot of the other theaters had a common practice of showing fewer shows per day and 
charging more depending on where you sat in the theater. Mm, like what? a normal, like when you're going to the opera or going yeah, to see a play. Totally. It's that sort of setup. Yeah. And yeah, how you see in like old movies and stuff, you'll often see on the marquee, they'll be like, this movie tonight. And it'll just be like one or two movies being listed yeah. instead of like a whole list of all these different movie posters. Right. Especially maybe because that theater only has so many screens. Yeah. And and so a lot of the the Grindhouse theaters, like the point of them is that like they weren't necessarily studio owned. And so Grindhouse mm-hmm. theaters are were like a really fantastic way to skirt around the Haze Code. The Haze Code. Um, which we mentioned in the Cat People episode. You know, with the Haze Code, if a, if a movie didn't quote unquote pass code, it, it really had a much more limited release and like mm-hmm. limited opportunities as to where it could be shown. Right. Yeah. And so Grindhouse theaters are are one of them right mm. um so which is why like grand house theaters would would show like a variety of stuff they would show like straight up pornography mm-hmm. but like they would also show like fancy smancy european art house films you right. know that like didn't pass code for other reasons because they right? had like a moment of nudity that wasn't like sexual but was just there or like yeah. a drug use or something yeah mm-hmm. yeah exactly or maybe like a suicide or something. oh yeah yeah maybe yeah a, a queer person perhaps <laughs> Exactly. Um, So Grindhouse is like a good way to get around that, right? And so Grindhouse kind of had its heyday in like, I would say the 1970s specifically, Mm -hmm. specifically as exploitation films are becoming more and more popular. And I'll talk about that momentarily. But nowadays, like everybody's just crazy busy. You know, Mm -hmm. there's a million things on TV and a lot of it's really good, Mm -hmm. right? And like we've got, you know, like jobs and stuff. Right, yeah. Um, But yeah, even just in terms of movies, like, yes, you could go to the theater, but a lot of these movies are like straight to streaming. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like you can just watch these things at home. <laughs> so, you know, thinking about it, and this is something I've I've heard, I think probably heard like Stephen King talking about this before, that like in the 50s and 60s, like on a Saturday, you would like grab a couple dimes and you could just hang out at the movie theater like all day. Yeah. You know, for just like a dime, mm-hmm. right? And so this is kind of a similar thing. Like the the idea of a grindhouse double feature is like you would pay one ticket price, mm-hmm. usually the same price for one movie to see two movies, Ooh. right? And so at the time, you're like, heck yeah, that's a steal, right? And now it's just like, oh my god, I have to sit through two movies. I don't have that kind of time, <laughs> yeah. you know? Can you imagine? Can you Even imagine? Though I will sit there and binge an entire TV series, exactly. But I'm not gonna sit there and watch two movies, two movies. outside of my own home. <laughs> Exactly. Um, So there's definitely like Grindhouse comes with a very specific culture, right? Mm. And it is also very specifically American, right? There's a little Canadian in there, but like the idea of Grindhouse and like the idea of lower ticket prices being able to go in and pay like one flat rate and see a multitude of movies is a really American thing. Um, so and so the these Grindhouse films like they would show like really quite a large variety of film, like I was just mentioning, right? And mm-hmm. what they would specifically show is something called exploitation films, right? Yeah. A- an exploitation film is basically a film that tries to succeed financially by kind of exploiting current trends Mm. uh and like lurid content Mm. right so definitely exploiting current trends maybe playing on like some some societal anxieties depending Mm. on the the era right um exploitation films are generally low quality kind of b movies right but they're they were also like really influential like they set a lot of trends mm-hmm. um they can attack uh, attract critical attention and become really historically important 
Right, that makes sense because they were specifically trying to latch on to the already existing trends of the time. Yeah. And they could turn it out a lot faster than the more like prestigious films. Exactly. Yeah. Than like a studio film. Right. Yeah. Because they were just sort of low budget. Let's do it. Yeah. And there's plenty of of exploitation films that have like really significant cult followings. I'm thinking of Superfly specifically. So, um, but also the idea, because, you know, we talked about how this Grindhouse being a double feature with with Planet Terror Death Proof. Um, And apparently there was a reasoning as to why Planet Terror was shown first and then death proof i'm curious um yeah basically the idea is that like the second feature like you want to get people in to stick around for a double feature right Mm -hmm. so you want to show the like quote-unquote weaker film first oh and the stronger one second kind of as like a reward um and you know tarantino just has like a much bigger name and like is much more bankable and more financially successful that's really interesting. Than a lot of Rod- Robert Rodriguez stuff, which is funny because he directed Spy Kids. I know, right? Yeah. That's enough for me. I don't <laughs> yeah. need to know anything else about him. Yeah. Spy Kids. Spy Kids. <laughs> um, also from Dust Till Dawn with Tarantino. Yeah. One of Tarantino's first Great movies. Great film. Um, so... So it's meant to be, like, fun, you know, but, like, sometimes, you know, Tarantino's uh, movies can be, like, a little bit polarizing, right? They People talk about him a lot, you know? Mm-hmm. And so they figured because of a Tarantino's greater commercial success, the Death Proof would be shown second. Um, oh. Which tends, what I've kind of been hearing is, like, doing the research around this is that a lot of people, at least the ones who have communicated uh, have opinions online. have opinions and have have said so online or on their own podcast or whatever are saying that planetary should have been second because they like it more because they, they like it's it the more. better movie they think it's a better movie yeah or yeah. or not that it's necessarily a better movie but it's more fun and more right. entertaining yeah and yeah. i do think even when people talk about like quentin tarantino films death proof isn't really one that comes up a lot as like no as a matter of fact like i was listening to a couple of podcasts you know like listening to other people talk about planet terror and one person on one of the podcasts was like i think death proof's the only tarantino movie i haven't seen uh-huh. and i'm like wow you're really missing out man. yeah it's, it's amazing a- such a good fucking movie. It's so good. Yeah. It's Yeah, it's my favorite Tarantino movie. Uh that's a toughie for me. I know that's I, a, can't. I know that's a lot harder for you. <laughs> but no, it is uh, my favorite. Yeah. No, uh, it's so good. Uh, and we will talk about it next time. I know. We gotta um, hold ourselves down. So But that is interesting. Yeah, because yeah. I don't think I do think that Planet Terror did a better job of being well, you'll tell me mm-hmm. if it actually did a better job of being a grindhouse film or like an exploitation film. Yeah. You know, but just to me watching it, it feels a lot more like kind of genre and like kind of dated and just sort of like fun and wacky and silly and sort of like it's having a lot of fun with itself. Yeah. Whereas Death Proof feels more like just on its own being its own sort of film. Yeah. I'm sure it is also making a bunch of references. Oh, that so, oh my God. So many references. That I'm just not yeah. picking up on. But yeah. I feel like it stands on its own a lot better than planet terror does i feel like the whole time i was watching planet terror i was like that's probably a reference to something that's probably a reference to something this is all a genre i don't know right i don't know and while that's still being true when you've seen death proof you still like i was still just like i can enjoy death proof just on its own on its own without understanding all of these references yeah Yeah. so Uh, i can kind of see why people think that planet terror is better because it sort of does the assignment better right you know what i mean yeah uh, yeah, and I would I would make an argument that they're both really fantastic examples of exploitation films, just in different ways, you know. We will talk so, about it more when we talk about Death Proof, because we'll ta- I'm, I'm excited to hear about that. Yeah, so uh, so we can do a nice little setup right now, so, yeah. so some things to keep in mind for next time. Yeah. Um, so basically, everything in this movie, and everything about this movie, P- Planet Terror, is a reference, 
right? Yeah. Uh, references to what I would assume are probably really precious and formative childhood memories. Right. For Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Um, which I love for them. <laughs> Good for you, babies. <laughs> and, you know, who can who can say anything different about themselves? Again, those, like, formative kind of childhood adolescent memories still, like, being incredibly important and, like, relevant to ourselves and, like, our personalities, you know? Yeah. I mean, the things that show up in my writing are the things that I read back when I was in, like, high school, you yeah, know? exactly. Yeah. And, like, I still have uh, – I, I try to expand my music tastes and, like, every – direction of different genres but like man I got a soft spot for the stuff I listened to when I was 14 right you know and I still listen to it all the time yeah and it's just like yeah but it's special you know mm-hmm. it's special because it was it just got there when right, when it needed to when our brains were just doing a lot of stuff and yeah. just like really got got locked in there yeah um so you know I imagine that uh you know really not knowing much about the biography of Robert Rodriguez or Tarantino like I can imagine that they probably spent a shit ton of time in movie theaters Mm. or or watching film yeah in some capacity writing some VHS yeah (laughs) Uh, uh specifically exploitation and really violent movies about like guns cars sex yeah. You know, that kind of stuff. So the I think really important thing about exploitation is that like it is really loosely defined and mm. and much more to do with our perception as the viewer of the film than like the film's actual content or like mm. explicit messaging, you know? Okay. Because the material that's like a little bit more lurid, maybe titillating, you know, mm-hmm. can coexist with like artistic content. Like those two can Oh, yeah. Be together, right? Yeah. We see that with the fact that, like, a lot of those art films that we were just talking about, like, failed to pass Hayes Code. Right, right, yeah. So they were often shown in those same theaters as, like, those exploitation films, right? Right. So there are a ton of exploitation subgenres. Yeah. Um, let me just go over a couple of them very quickly. Sure. Uh, the cautionary films, Reefer Madness, for example. Oh, yeah, right? Reefer um, Madness. A really great way to get around Hayes Code, right, by showing drug use or sex or something as a cautionary tale, yeah. right? Don't do this. And show, like, you know, a cautionary tale to show, like, the dangers yeah. of drug use and premarital sex, right? Right, yeah. Um, that so it also gets to show all the fun, too. And then the fun, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they'll die in the end. Don't worry. Right. They'll they'll repent, yeah. Yeah. Uh, biker films. So, like, movies about biker gangs. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. that kind of thing. Uh, black exploitation, right? Yeah. I feel um, like that's the one I'm most, like, familiar with in terms of having heard about it. It's... Yeah, it's interesting. Those sort of like race exploitation films. Oh yeah, like and there's black exploitation. Like, there's and black like... exploitation. There's it's called. I did not name it this. It's called red exploitation for like Native Americans. Ooh. There's uh Canuck exploitation for Canadians. <laughs> there's like Jack exploitation for South Africans. Like there's wow. yeah. it's all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Because every like culture has its own anxieties, you know, and yeah. like things to to play off of and exploit. So and I it think makes sense. In America, it probably makes sense that, like, black exploitation films got really big around that time because it was also the time when we were really into, like, white people were really into other forms of, like, black entertainment in this sort of, like, underground edgy kind of way, you know, yeah. of, like, being into the, like, rock and roll or, like, uh-huh, whatever, yeah. you know, all of those kind of 
art forms That's that yeah. black people make yeah and then white people want to take over it makes sense that they would be like yeah i want to watch blackula or whatever right and it's it's interesting because in a lot of black exploitation films you know like it's, there's a really prominent theme of like black specifically americans right because this is a very yeah. like american culture thing um overcoming a really hostile authority figure through mm-hmm. violence yeah know? um like shaft right and it's interesting because some black exploitation films were created by like black creators like mm-hmm. black filmmakers you know directors editors all that stuff but sometimes they would be made with like a black cast but like a white production crew and right? that's like, a very different it's vibe. very very different right it's a very um, different vibe and, but both of those kinds of films are considered black exploitation yeah right um we get cannibal films oh. movies about cannibalism obviously very taboo yeah right Car exploitation. Oh, that's a big one. Right? Yeah. Like lots of cars, car racing, car crashing, uh, you know, fancy, fancy sports cars, muscle cars, blah, 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 Which blah, Which is blah. another, once again, very American thing. Very Nobody much. does cars, not in terms of like making cars, but like the car culture that we have in America. Exactly. Because we have so many roads, so many like distances that we have to go across. Yeah, the country so is gigantic. So yeah. to do things like street racing. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, big examples of this are Vanishing Point and Two-Lane Blacktop, which are explicitly referenced in Death Proof. Oh, so car exploitation is uh, yeah death proof is a really fantastic example of a car exploitation. Yeah, film. once you say that, it's like oh yeah, of course death proof is a reference to that shit. <laughs> of course, yeah. Um, and then we also have this kind of like Italian made slasher film called Giallo films. That's my best Italian accent. I liked it. Um, that focuses on like really cruel murders and like the subsequent kind of search for the killer um this is where dario argento makes his name who is a you know a very famous italian horror director he's definitely a familiar name to Um, me at least we also have monster movies kind of this idea of nature run amok Mm -hmm. you know especially post world war ii with like concerns about nuclear weapon weapon testing right which is how we get Godzilla. Godzilla. Yeah. yeah, he's the big um, one. And, you know, there's, oh, there's a, a whole variety of films from the 50s of just, like, gigantic animals, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, there's Nazi exploitation. Gotta have the Nazi exploitation. Yep. That's why you also have the, um in the fake trailers that we have at the beginning of Grand yes. There's the one that's, like, SS werewolf yep. ladies, yep. Nazi lady werewolves. Yep. All, I forget what it is. All of that are, are references to different exploitation films. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we also get revenge films, mm. right? Specifically rape revenge films. Yeah. You know, I spit on your grave, right? Um, our girl, Carol J. Clover, comes back for this one. She has a little bit in, in her book, uh, Men, Women, and Chance House, right? Examining the implication of, like, the reversal of cinema's understanding of traditional gender roles in mm-hmm. these revenge films. It's kind of an offshoot of a vigilante film with, you know, the victim's kind of, like, transformation into an Avenger, like, hunter, hunted, and hunter right. kind of thing, you know. Which I imagine is why we have the scene in this film where Rose McGowan's character, Cherry, is, like, almost raped and then instead kills her would-be rapist. Yeah, so good. Um, sexploitation, duh. You know, like, movies that resemble in part or whole, like, soft core pornography mm-hmm. nudity or semi-nudity specifically for women the sexploitation films also have a lot of like lesbian sex scenes right oh yeah um and they've been studied for the context of like the political and social implications of lesbianism and women's mm-hmm. sexuality in this time 
it's something that kind of remains a concern of, of feminist critique of film. Uh, so a lot of these exploitation films, like super male gazy. Yeah, right, right yeah, 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 yeah. Of I course. I feel like that goes without saying. Uh, another one really important and actually relevant to Planet Terror is women in prison films. Oh, yeah. Yeah. People are really into that for some reason. Yeah, it's a really popular subgenre. Yeah. Um, they usually contain nudity, lesbianism, sexual assault like sexual humiliation and sadism yeah and like kind of rebellion among you know like quote-unquote captive women you know and um that's like its own thing women in prison is like its own subgenre of exploitation film um which is then also how we get movies um tv shows like orange is new black and wentworth yeah which are like women in prison lesbian sex yeah yeah uh slasher films we've talked about slasher films before they're an example of an exploitation film uh, spaghetti westerns, right? These are um, Italian-made westerns that become uh, start to really emerge in the mid-1960s. And they're different from the other westerns of the time because they're much more violent and mm. a little bit more amoral. The characters are oh. not necessarily like good guy, bad guy kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, more than in comparison to like a typical Hollywood Western, right? So great oh, examples are The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. That's exactly what I was going to say. Once Upon a Time in the West. Uh, Quentin Tarantino has directed two tributes to the genre, mm-hmm. Django Unchained yep. and The Hateful Eight. Yeah, though I think he brings up a little bit of a Western flair in a lot of his films. Very much so, yeah. Yeah, even in Kill Bill. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit of a Western flair, yeah. Um, splatter films, right? Just like gory films that focus on like graphic portrayals of gore and violence, mm-hmm. right? Would you consider Evil Dead to be an exploitation film? Yeah. Okay. I mean... Because it seems like that's sort of what it was. It was so gory and like... Yeah, super gory. And I think also... Uh, and low budget and quick. Low budget. And another subgenre of exploitation films are zombie films. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, right. And early zombie films date back to like the 1930s, but those zombies are much more in like the Haitian cultural like the tradition, like a mind controlled, like, in, like enslaved person mm-hmm. rather than like... Something's uh, back from the dead. Yeah, an infecting. undead thing. Yeah. yeah. But it, it's all kind of considered the sh- same genre, even though over the course, like, even though those early kind of more like mind-controlled slave genre of zombie film evolves over the next 30 years to create the zombie films that we know yeah. more today. Right. What we more think of zombies now when we just have a zombie in our head. Right. So having gone over all of those different subgenres, and that's not even all of them, right? right? Yeah. There's so many others. Um, but those are like really, really main ones. Which ones did you kind of recognize as like, oh yeah, that happens in Planet Terror? Yeah. I mean, a lot of them. A lot of them. Yeah. I mean, I see what you were saying about the women in prison one where we mm-hmm. do have this moment of cherry and dakota mm-hmm. locked up we definitely have i mean it's a zombie one it's gory they yeah. go a little over top with it oh yeah it's super splattery like yeah they're they're shooting bullets that take off entire limbs yeah there's the, uh, the heads are exploding yeah yeah there's the um gag where they find jt they think dead and covered oh, yes. in blood but yes. it turns out oh no it was just the barbecue, barbecue sauce, sauce it the... looks like his dog is eating his guts but that was just like sausage legs yeah. so he... they're like playing with the idea of the gory yeah and and then he takes a bite and he's like, mm, that's good. And yeah. I'm like, please stop. But yeah. Oh my God. The one that kills me, uh-huh. the one that I hate, but that feels very much like an exploitation thing mm-hmm. is the part needlessly, so needlessly, where the dog falls out of their car yeah, and then gets eaten up by the, they yeah. the dog. It's yeah. just like that. The, the dog, A, didn't need to be in this film in the first place. It really didn't. And then yeah. gets killed off in the most like, sort of like nowhere, just off to the side way. Yeah. That is just sort of like, oh, and that was just there because you're like. We're going to have a little dog death. And and splatters all over the crazy babysitting twins. Yeah. Right? yeah. But it just, yeah, it felt very. And a little bit of 
car exploitation as well. Like a lot of cars just kind of explode as like a punchline. Right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's like a big deal that JT has for some reason at his barbecue place, a really cool motorcycle and a really cool car. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, and Ray has his wrecker. Yeah. And it's yeah, like yeah. this whole thing. Um, obviously, you know, we do see a little bit of sex exploitation in this film as well. Yeah. The very opening scene of Rose McGowan go-go dancing during the opening credits. Which goes on for so long. <laughs> really, really long. Right. And it's just like, okay, so we're getting semi-nude women dancing suggestively. Another thing that I saw just sort of in my my reading, my research about this film, is that that why the missing reel comes up specifically where it does mm-hmm. is that it was like a common myth maybe not real but maybe real in grindhouse that often the sex scenes were the ones that would the part of the film that would get grainy and degrade quickest because often people would just replay ah! that scene over and over again and so they would degrade and, yeah. and or catch like, on fire even yeah. specifically that the workers there would like splice it out to keep for their own collection and so like that's why that's the part that's missing in in planet terror is because that sort of idea of that getting, you know, watched over watched and over, over again and over, or like yeah. stolen out. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, so obviously Planet Terror is a film with like a crazy long list of references to these kinds of like 60s, 70s, yeah. 80s exploitation it films. It is right? a pastiche. It's a pastiche. Yes. That's what it is setting out to do is yeah. sort of pay tribute to and all of these exploitation movies. In the in the grindhouse tradition of yeah. film, right? And yeah. so, but these films are inherently made from the white male perspective. Right. Right. Um, And while sometimes they do play on kind of uh, the anxieties of the, like the general American population, like atomic testing, Mm -hmm. communism, the space race, uh, violence and crime, you know, good old fashioned kids these days Mm -hmm. sort of thing, you know. Um, But really more specifically, like, these are from the perspective of, like, a white man's fear of, like, the status quo being disrupted, right? right. And, like, societal breakdowns in, like, traditional gender roles and, like, people mm-hmm. of color taking revenge on white authority figures, right? right. You know? But Planet Terror is a movie made in the 21st century, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it does, I still see a lot of, like, the 21st century American culture in it, specifically post-2001. But we, d- obviously, we do still see it fall victim to playing into, like, those really, like, misogynistic and racist and also ableist tropes. Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, I think it's also important to point out that, mm-hmm. like, um, Robert Rodriguez mm-hmm. is Mexican-American. This is true. Yes. Right? So it's it's specifically not coming from a white man's perspective, right? Oh, the, yes. But yeah. it is drawing on all of these same, like, racist tropes. And, and and there's a lot of people who were, like, on set during this film that say that it was basically co-directed by Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. So, like, he also has a pretty big, yeah. big say in, in it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, yeah. And, I mean, like, we also haven't even talked about the random weird scene where like there's that doctor who's taking the guy's arm off oh yeah the one asian dog the only asian character i'm pretty sure i think so yeah who like has subtitles for some reason even though he's speaking english and it's perfectly clear you can understand him yeah and it's like why does he have subtitles and i meant to like look into it yeah i I assumed in my research i couldn't find anything i I assumed it was yeah a grindhouse joke yeah. about like othering of the asian character yeah and, like the idea that the average white dude isn't gonna be able to understand him because he quote-unquote has an accent i also felt like as lieutenant muldoon is kind of explaining to el ray what is happening right and he like takes off his mask and he's kind of devolving into yeah, like a gross mess gross. right and ray and who else is it who it's abby is there with him. abby shoot shoots yeah 
Lieutenant Muldoon. Um, Ray, like, thanks him for his service yes. to the country. And, yes. Like, I think he even says, like, God bless you. And, like, yeah. thank you and for thank your, you service for your service to this country. Yeah. And then, like, shoots him. And I'm just like, I don't know. Something about that is, like, very much playing on our modern anxieties and, like, the war on terror and stuff. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I mean, the whole Osama bin Laden thing. The whole fact that Abby himself is very clearly Middle Eastern as a character. Yes. The character, uh, see what I do sometimes when I want to get better notes is I actually try to find copies of the script. Yeah. Which they're not always exactly the same as the movie we end up with. That's true. What was interesting about this one is that Abby, the character, was written to always be wearing a turban. No. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I was like, oh, so they just, okay. And I don't actually really know anything about Naveen Andrews's like actual genetics. I know he's English. It, it does make it does kind of make me feel like yeah, but where are you really from? Yeah, yeah. You know, he's British. <laughs> he's British. Yeah, yeah. But it's just yeah. He clearly was cast to play a Middle Eastern character mm-hmm. and like a Muslim character. Yeah, those are the fears. It's definitely it was in the script. I I didn't catch it if it was in the movie. You watched it more recently. You might yeah. know where JT specifically mm-hmm. like doesn't trust Abby because. He's like Muslim and like mm. makes some side comments about it. Mm-hmm. Is that in the movie? Mm. It was in the I original didn't catch script. This. I think they played down that. some of the anti-Muslim stuff. G- good. Yeah. Because <laughs> I was like, Turban? No. no. And then JT was just like, no, you can't trust those guys. Uh, and I was just like, mm. biochemical engineers? Yeah. <laughs> Them? I don't know. <laughs> um, and also, I think there's also a lot of, like, ableism in this film, especially when Cherry loses her leg. Yeah. Right, you know. Absolutely. Um, and it's also worth noting that there's a reference to Jesse James in this film. We were just talking about JT's uh, uh, fancy-smancy. Oh, right. Yeah. He says he got the motorcycle, like, custom-made because Jesse James really loved his barbecue or whatever. So he, like, made him a custom motorcycle or something. Right. But, like, are you familiar with Jesse James? Only in passing. Okay, so... Um, and also that it's the name of the Pokemon Team Rocket characters. Jesse and James, yeah. Are the only things that I care about in Pokemon. Uh, so Jesse James was married to Sandra Bullock oh. for a while. It's one of those, like, this happened however long ago that was, like, over a decade now, where, like, there was this quote-unquote curse of women who won Best Actress Oscars oh. that, like, within the year after winning their Best Actress Oscars, their, like, husband would leave them or, like, oh they would God. get divorced. Right? I honestly believe that. <laughs> yeah. Because men hate to see a woman on top. And so so Sandra Bullock was married to Jesse James. They were married for a while. And then, like, they get um, divorced. And, like, over the course of the – I'm, you know, not trying to, like, pay attention to celebrities' love lives. I am a – Sandra Bullock fan though yeah. that like he was all of a sudden like hanging out with like girls with like neo-nazi tattoos oh. and like and honestly like I could probably be more up to date on this situation but like sounds like he was making some pretty poor choices and like hanging out with like well-known like white supremacists oh yeah I thought Jesse James was like an old cowboy name <laughs> it, it is also that yeah yeah okay. um but obviously that's not who they're referencing in this movie because no old cowboy was coming up to this place and loving the barbecue <laughs> right um I just have one more one more thing I wanted to mention about this and then okay. we can get into the themes sure. um so I had I found this article written by oh it was like a horrorgeeklife.com oh yeah love that place <laughs> love that place uh the author is John Odette so this is just straight up a quote from from what he says 
this is planet terror succeeds due to its self-awareness which mm-hmm. we've talked a little bit about right um it knows what it is and what it's trying to say yeah the mexican exploitation motif is dynamite in rodriguez's hands right the Makes spare sense. parts of the 70s grindhouse features blend well and the writer director has created a homogenous rendition of them uh, these components include the aforementioned gore and the objectification slash adoration of women. Mm-hmm. It transplants the viewer not to a time period, but a particular experience. Planet Terror is a love letter to the past, but it shares its remembered passion with uninhibited earnestness. Yeah. And I just like the way they, the way that yeah. John Odette said that. And I was like, you know what, John, I'm just going to directly quote you on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's what, what I kind of meant when I was talking about pastiche. Yeah. How, um, you know, you said you're kind of used to hearing it with negative connotations, but the thing is that it is, it tends to be really earnestly in love with what it's referencing. And sometimes earnestness can be a little bit hokey and corny and just sort of silly. Yeah. But it also can be really beautiful and fun and wonderful. Yeah. I think in this case it is, you just do get a sense of joy from this film. And everybody involved, well, maybe not everybody involved. Uh, We can talk more about Rose McGowan's situation in a second. But that, like, most of the people involved with this film were just sort of there to have a good time. Yeah. And I think they did. But, you know, what I'm now realizing is, like, how much I'm I'm also, like, making connections to drag as we're talking about this, right? And especially, like, with pasti- like, pastiche and, like, making the reference and her name being Cherry Darling and it all being part of hyper-femininity. It's just, like, it's just reminding me a lot of drag, yeah. honestly. Like, this movie's, like, an exploitation film in drag, kind of. That's an interesting kind of way to think of it. Yeah. That it is, I mean, there's an extent to which the masculinity of it is so over the top. Right. That it does feel kind of draggy. Yeah. Like, it's obsession with, like, penises and, like, and, testicles. And testicles. It's oh, like my weird. God. I mean, because beyond yeah. just, like, Abby's little collection that he's keeping. Yeah. We also have, in our first, like, hospital scene where they're just sort of, like, trying to figure out what this disease is. And you have the guy in the background looking through diseases. And they talk for a while about, like somebody's penis that they had to amputate oh yeah and like they show it and like we don't need to really be looking at that you know and near the end of the rape scene oh yeah as quentin tarantino's penis is like melting off yeah Yeah. because he's been infected and so yeah it's just like this weird sort of over the top yeah obsession with masculinity that does start to feel kind of draggy because it's all just like gender as a performance also just like a couple i want to just in case you weren't aware a couple of like the references or Um, the fact that tom savini has a role in this film like tom savini is like very well regarded as like pretty much on the vanguard of particularly horror movie special effects oh yeah when we were watching you talked about he was one of he was like the deputy yeah we see him he's the one who gets his finger bit off he gets his finger bit off and then he gets like torn apart like drawn and quartered right yeah so he's he's just a a very well-known very well regarded and highly respected horror movie special effects guy you know um the film is made to look damaged um apparently five of the six film reels were like edited with real film damage and like stock footage you know um dr block's thigh holster is oh. a ref it's a reference so that's yeah. why it's there because we're like what does she have a thigh holster yeah because yeah, she's like a fancy doctor with all of her like different yeah. needles that she has and then she's in her got pockets. like a little syringe gun to like to shoot have on her thigh i'm like when as a doctor do you need that it's, it's a reference <laughs> um the music is incredibly reminiscent of john carpenter who okay. you know is like you know a very famous and well-regarded horror director and a composer as well if you've seen halloween which have you seen halloween i have not seen halloween yet 
to do that. Yeah, yeah. that's also on the list. Um, you'll hear the music and you'll be like, oh, yeah, super John Carpenter, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Quentin Tarantino is watching a trailer for a real film called Women in Cages. Oh, which yes. Which is an, an infamous women in prison film. Yeah. You know, uh, what? some of the, the things they say in the trailer are ridiculous. It's like, white flesh on the black market. Oh, God. Yeah, did you not catch that? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's bad. Yeah, Ew. yeah, I know it's bad. Um, and then, and then we already talked about it. The missing reel, yeah, is like a total joke. You know, cuts yeah. the sex scene short, and you know, all of a sudden, all of the characters are wearing different clothes. There's like new characters in the barbecue place that weren't there before. Yeah, um, we don't know about El it's Ray's all on fire. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, another one that I heard that was a reference mm-hmm. was specifically the cameo of. Bruce Willis, yeah. that um, it was a big thing where they would have like a big name actor in the trailer, but he would only be on set to film for like one day. Yeah. So he wouldn't be in a lot of scenes and noticeably they cut it together so that he never actually had to share a scene with anybody else, mm. which w- happened a lot. So you would get this big name actor, but you wouldn't have to pay very much for him. Right. Because you would just bring him one day, you'd shoot all of his scenes in a row. Yeah. You wouldn't even have to deal with the other actors. Yeah. You would just cut them in later. And so that's why Bruce Willis's character you basically never see him share a screen with anybody. That's true. It yeah. always, it's always like people talking to him yeah. and it will cut to him and yeah. stuff. And why he doesn't actually have a big role in it yeah. is because he's supposed to be like the big face you see in the trailer to get everybody in to see the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there isn't actually much like to Drew see. Like Drew Barrymore in Scream. Yeah, yeah. very much like yeah. that. Um, um, it's also why in the trailer, yeah. the fake trailers that they have, Yes, I forget which one it is. Is it also the dumb Nazi one that has like somebody as Fu Manchu? Yes. That's like a big name actor. Uh, yes, it's uh it's fucking Nicolas Cage. Yeah, it's fucking like, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I was like Fu Manchu. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, oh, oh I hate this. Yeah. I know it's a reference. I don't yeah, like it. Yeah, it's all supposed to be a big joke. Uh, yeah. And, but it's like, yeah. Uh yeah, well actually I, I did learn about this that like Bruce Willis had had worked with Robert Rodriguez before and was just like anything you got for me like I want to work with you again you know and so he was just like hey you want to do this right and like I said Quentin Tarantino was like pretty active on set of this film you know and like sees and has worked with Bruce Willis before he's in Pulp Fiction right right yeah um and was like we can't afford Bruce Willis (laughs) how how did you get Bruce Willis um and he's like doing him doing him a solid you know just doing a friend a favor kind of thing oh that's cool yeah that's fun I was wondering since we've been talking about exploitation films and we sort of briefly brought up how this seems like everybody's having a lot of fun yeah do we actually want to talk about the behind the scenes stuff with Rose McGowan I would love to I've got a lot on here you want to you want to process some feelings about Rose McGowan yeah I just I just want her to be happy. I guess because one of the things that I have, we're going to talk about like borders in a little bit and sort of like their mutability, their malleability, Mm -hmm. how they're insufficient and stuff. Mm -hmm. And like one of the borders that I had, these sort of like supposedly sort of diametrically opposed things, but that actually have really thin lines. One of them that I think I want to bring up now is like the sort of line between exploitation and empowerment. Yes. Where you have these yes. like these rape revenge films. Yeah. Black exploitation. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, is this empowering? Yes. Or is this exploitative? And I think that's why we get these rape revenge films that on one hand can be like, oh, she's coming back. She's gonna mm-hmm. kill them people that have hurt her. Like, oh, look at her go. She's so powerful. Yeah. All of those revenge films, but at the same she's time She's the Avenger now. Yeah. She's but at the, the hunter, same time the we had to start with that scene of her being like yeah. abused. Yeah. And in this case, we have this very real history with Rose McGowan. Uh yeah. So what I learned, which, you know, is interesting, and I feel like the intention is good, but like the impact is maybe not what he wanted. But like uh Robert Rodriguez was like 
dating Rose McGowan at the time that they yes. made this film. And he was like, I want Rose McGowan in this film, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he knew that he did that knowing that it would make Harvey really mad. Right, yeah. Right. Um, but he does it anyway. And, and I, I feel like everybody mm-hmm. knows about the history between Rose McGowan and Harvey Weinstein, but just to lay it out mm-hmm. there, she was like... What Rose McGowan <sighs> alleges, even though... I, believe women. I believe her. <laughs> um, that I believe it was the 1997 like Sundance, some, a film festival. Yeah. Maybe it was Keynes, maybe it was Sundance, yeah, I don't know. They all blame um, That he sexually assaulted her yeah. at that film yeah. festival yeah. i believe in 97 and as we all know now after a bunch more has come out yeah. about harvey weinstein yeah this was a recurring event that he did you know he assaulted yeah. a lot of women yeah you know rose mcgallan though was one of the first ones to sort of actually like say something about it yeah and right. so she got really blacklisted mm-hmm. by harvey weinstein yep and robert rodriguez knew that when he was like i want to put her in this yeah. film and he was already sort of contracted to do like his next three movies or something with the Weinstein yep. Corporation yep. or whatever it's called productions whatever <laughs> right so so uh Robert Rodriguez already knew all that stuff right because yeah. McGowan had actually disclosed that to him before and wanted to cast her in this film knowing that it would piss off Harvey mm-hmm. but like also knowing that Bob Weinstein his brother would kind of like smooth it over smooth it over a little bit right um although Rodriguez later said, and I think Rose McGowan agrees that this is what happened, is that Harvey deliberately slashed the advertisement budget for the film, probably in an effort to hurt its box office. And honestly, this film doesn't do very well in the box office. Certainly not internationally, again, because Grindhouse is such like an American tradition, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe I'm sure that there that is some aspect of it. I don't know if it's the yeah. entire thing right you yeah know? that there could be multiple things um, at play here yeah so what i have is a, a quote from mcgowan's book yeah she wrote a book called brave that came out in 2018 where she talks about what it, she writes as the ultimate act of cruelty mm-hmm. occurred when rodriguez and tarantino later sold their films to dimension films because they were made independently with their own production companies um and then sold the films to dimension films which was Weinstein owned. Mm-hmm. I got this from like a indie wire or something, whatever, but it's a quote from the book, right? It says one of the memoir's most gripping chapters, she being Rose McGowan, recounts her affair with the director Robert Rodriguez, a smooth talking, sensitive seeming guy who turned out to be a Svengali. Fun word. <laughs> uh he and Quentin Tarantino were planning a double feature, Planetary and Death Proof, based on the pulp movies of the nineteen seventies, um, and wanted Rose McGowan to star. Rose uh, McGowan fell hard and fast, trusting Rodriguez enough to tell her about her experience with Weinstein. Uh, He proceeded to use the knowledge against her, she claims, as a tool for mind games, starting with the scene in which Tarantino, playing a character in this movie, attacks McGowan's character. And she, like, quote, she has a quote of saying, like, I was in a backward world, she writes. I was losing my grip on sanity in what McGowan interpreted as, like, a pretty ultimate act of cruelty. To like have yeah. Ro- like to have Rodriguez like put that in the film and have her do that, mm-hmm. and then later selling the film to her abuser. Yeah, you know. In response to this, yes. Rodriguez came out, and I think I also read this in an Indie Warrior article. Sure. Yeah, to just sort of have Rodriguez's perspective, he was like, "I was already contracted before this movie even was made." Yes, to sell my next three to the Weinstein's. Yeah, like that was already decided before yeah. Rose was ever involved. And also that the script was already written before Rose was ever involved. So that scene wasn't specifically about her. 
right? Right. That's Rodriguez's side of it. Mm -hmm. But either way, the thing that I find interesting, I guess, is that he talks about that scene being specifically the moment that Cherry Darling comes into her power. That her moment of taking down this guy that wants to sexually assault her Mm -hmm. is her ultimate moment of becoming a powerful player in this movie. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what I mean about this line between empowerment and exploitation, where it's so clear that these two people had such a different read on the scene that they were both involved in as like a writer and as an actor, Mm -hmm. because for him, he was like, what's more powerful than this. He's taking, you know, she's taking down this guy that was trying to hurt her. Yeah. Whereas for McGowan, it was like the super, uncomfortable yeah yeah you know in this backwards world thing of like bringing up this previous trauma where she's feeling really betrayed that like it was not an empowering moment at all and for me as a viewer I would not say that that was the most empowering moment in the film for her no I do I will say that I do really thoroughly enjoy her like what does she stick her like peg leg through him yeah i liked that yeah and like giving him the like the like splinter just like taking out his eye you know yeah and then also like as far as like it's still obviously like really dangerous and like meant to be perceived as dangerous but like uh quinn tarantino's character is like kind of not good (laughs) <laughs> you know, like he—he's obviously not thinking things through, because like if his his intent is to sexually assault someone it, with his penis, but like it's falling off, yeah. Or like, and I was like, "What are you doing, man? He said like, he's you just really haven't thought quick. this through." But like, it's happening so much faster than yeah. than. I was like, "What are you doing? You yeah. know, like you're a fucking idiot." Well, and that's the other yeah. thing is that there's parts of that scene. Well, there's parts of lots of this movie, yeah, that are played as comedy, yeah, that's sort of played as laughs, and it's like. Nothing about that scene of sexual assault yeah. felt funny to yeah. watch. Even that part where it's like, oh, what are you doing, dude? Like, yeah. oh, isn't it funny that he's like so incompetent and yeah. it's like he's, you know, leading himself to his own death. He's like letting himself get infected yeah. to do this. And it's like so stupid. Isn't it funny? And it's like, mm. not really. Or is it just really? Yeah. It's pretty cool watching her like stick her leg in his eye. Yeah. Like, that's pretty cool. But I mean, that would have been cool. It's not funny, though. Without it being a sexual assault scene. I mean, they still had, all of them were kidnapped. All of them were captured by the soldiers. That's true. The guys had to have their scene where they like attacked their guards and like got out of there and like shot them and stuff. You know, they got to do some cool gun work. That's true. Right. El Rey and Abby and them. And I think that's where JT gets shot because they're like getting out of there. Yeah. And like, that's not what the ladies get to go through. (laughs) What the ladies get to go through is almost being sexually assaulted. Yeah. And then having to defend themselves with like, inferior weapons and like not really as cool badass shots but instead these sort of like really visceral things i think i think cherry gets those again like when she gets a gun for a leg yeah right like especially in the very last scene where she like upgrades to like a gatling gun yeah you know like that's pretty badass right yeah yeah there are definitely bigger moments of power for her but that is also the scene right before she gets her first gun leg Right, right. So that's supposed to be like her leveling up. Right, which she gets from Ray. Yeah. Right. Because, um, yeah, obviously, like Ray and Cherry's relationship does have like a lot of abuse dynamics. Um, but I would say that, like, to the best of his ability, I would say that Ray probably does really care for Cherry. Yeah. Is just like doesn't know how to not control her. Yeah. Should we talk more about yeah. just abuse in this movie? We yeah. already have a little bit, specifically yeah. with like. Dakota and 
her husband, Dr. Bill The Block. doctor's block, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the doctor's block. Yeah. But, yeah. Because, yeah, like I said before, I don't think the men know how to do anything that isn't controlling in some way or being controlled. Or how way. to treat another human being as, like, as an equal. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, the big one for me, because the one that's interesting to me is that so often El Rey is this sort of, like, controlling, cool guy of the film. He's kind of our main guy. Mm-hmm. He gets all these really cool, like, gun scenes where he's, like, twirling them around. There's, like, a really <laughs> dumb extended scene, like, that's supposed to be funny where he's, like, twirl, 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 for, like, no reason that goes on too long. It's and all the really guys good. are, like, wow, well, he's so cool. He's so cool. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. But, like, the really interesting relationship to me is him with the sheriff. Yeah, what even like the sh- is it? Like, the sheriff seems to be, like, getting off on, like, the fact that he's like, you know, I've really put my neck out for you. I've really protected you. You've done a lot of bad things in the past. You shouldn't have any guns. Now you're showing up with a gun and a girl missing a leg. I could really take you in for this. And, like, just holding this power over El Rey is, like, just so appealing to the sheriff. Yeah. Oh, and then not to mention the sheriff is also the the brother of JT, right? And, like, also his landlord somehow? Yeah. And, like, is consistently, like, trying to raise his rent as, like, a way to, like... Get him to give his barbecue recipe? Yeah, it's, like, coercion, kind of. Yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah, he's like, I have power over you. Yeah. That's how he does relationships. Yeah. And the interesting thing, I think, like, with his brother, with JT, yeah. JT fights him back and is like... Uh, I'm never going to give you my yeah, recipe. I, yeah. Not if I'm dying in your arms while I give it to you. And then, of course. And then guess what? That's a foreshadowing it, to when they're dying in each other's arms. It's so funny because they're dying in each other's arms and JT is giving his brother the recipe and his brother is writing yes. it down. I'm like, why are you writing this down? You're about to die. Yeah. And then JT is like, you got to take that to your grave, right? And he's like, I can pretty much damn guarantee you. it. And yeah. Like, yeah. Why did you even bother writing it down? You're silly. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yes. So then you have that. But then for some reason with El Rey, what I find extra interesting about their relationship. So they have some sort of past where El Rey's gotten into trouble with the law. Yeah. And isn't supposed to have guns for whatever reason. Yeah. And like El Rey just goes along with this. Like he's so ready to play this sort of more like, yeah, the sheriff is in charge. Every time the sheriff is like, hand over that gun. El Rey's like, here's the gun. Yeah. And it's like so polite about it. Yeah. And so like, yeah, you're the one who's on top. Here's my gun. Uh-huh. Until the moment when we have the missing reel where El Rey tells the sheriff his real backstory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where yeah, he's yeah. like some sort of black ops, super cool military guy Something. or whatever. Yeah. He's that El Rey. Yeah. Then it's like the sheriff is like, here's all of the guns. The guns. Take yes. every gun. Yes. And it's like this complete power flip, this total reversal where even El Rey says... Like, the sheriff wants to apologize for treating him bad in the past. Yeah. And El Rey says, like, don't mention it. And that's an order. He says, yeah. and that's an order. because, And then suddenly the sheriff is really happy to do whatever El Rey says. He's like, what's our plan, El Rey? Yeah, yeah, Which yeah. Which car are we taking? What Give are we doing next? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Oh, it's God. like, they're so happy to be in any power relationship as long as they know who's on top. Yeah. The, as long as it's very clear. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. And I think that happens throughout. Yeah. Where it's like there's this lot of anxiety for all of these men of like not knowing who's in control. Right. And needing to be the one who is in control. And then and then meanwhile, what do the like what do Dakota Block and Cherry say to each other when they're yeah. in their cell? Yeah, no, it's specifically yeah, Cherry Darling. She's yeah. filling down. It's a low point for her. For sure. And Dakota talks about how her girlfriend would say when she was in this situation, mm-hmm. whenever everything's really bad and you feel like you're spiraling down. Yeah. All you have to do is reach up. 
And Cherry's like, what if there's nothing there to grab you? Yeah. And Dakota's like, you still just reach just, up. And, and like, yeah. This this thing that's passed from like girlfriend to girlfriend to like this new woman friend. Yeah. That's like this message of like helping each other. Yeah. Helping to all so that everybody can together reach this position of yeah. like safety and, and like, like you just equilibrium. Yeah. You need to reach up and trust that someone who loves and cares about you is going to help you. Will up. help you. Yeah. Yeah. And that is so different than what the men understand. Yeah. And that it's like Cherry almost dies because she doesn't want to leave El Rey and yes. wants to stay behind with El Rey. Yes. And then it's Dakota who yells at her, reach up. Reach and up. Yeah. Puts the, the rope down for her. And, and she gets, actually does like reach, reach up, up and, yeah, and, and it's like this powerful moment of her grabbing onto that yeah. rope and going away. With just what must be fantastic upper body and core strength. I know. She is just <laughs> dangling by a rope from a helicopter. For a while. For a while. No, Cherry. Well, you know, one of her useless skills is all of the freaking pole work, pole That's dancing true. work. Yeah, you gotta have hella core for that. There's nothing useless. Hella about- grip. Like you have to have all sorts of. There's stuff nothing that. useless about good core strength. Let me tell you. Yeah. You know. Oh yeah. Like she even calls like her ability to ride a motorcycle a useless talent, and I'm like, no, that's very useful, especially yeah. right now. You yeah. Know, you gotta- I mean, yeah. And that is kind of the joke where a lot of her useless talents end up actually being really helpful. Yeah. And I feel like the only reason why she considered them useless was because they weren't helpful in terms of like reaching the top of some sort of like power dynamic, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. But when it came a situation of like getting everybody to safety where she was like, okay, I need to get in there and like kill all these zombies and make sure to clear away for this helicopter. Yeah. Then it's like, oh, these are all very useful skills. Yes. And she's the one who ends up being really useful when they escape to Mexico. Yes. She's the one who seems to be protecting everybody with all of her She's quote unquote like useless skills. She's like one of the skills. only ones, the only people on a horse. A lot yeah. of other people are just walking. Yeah. yeah. That um, is like, yeah, it's this very different dynamic that these women have with each other. Right. Yeah. I was really hoping in my, in my head canon. Yeah. Cherry and Dakota are lovers. Oh, After absolutely. they escape to Mexico. I have no we, doubt. We don't see them together, though. Like, we see them no. separate of each other. Yeah. But they definitely made it to Mexico together. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they do have, like, a, a, at least one little flirty moment mm-hmm. where, like, they int- like, they're introduced to each other for the first time. And Cherry's like, I'm Cherry. Uh, yeah. And, and she, Dakota's and like, like, you sure you are. Sure are. It's like, keep it in your pants, Dakota. <laughs> Damn. Your girlfriend just died. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I support you, Dakota. And your shitty husband just turned into a zombie. Like, let's take it slow. It's Rose McGowan, though. That's true. With absolutely impeccable hair and makeup yeah. the entire time. Yes. I bet Dakota would support her in her comedy career. Absolutely. Or could help her figure out how to become a doctor. That, too. Yeah. Learn some medical stuff. That is sure. actually another great sort of it's a very limited recurring thing it only recurs once yeah um line because there's a bunch of things that recur a bunch of lines that come back yeah one where um they ask dakota if she's a doctor and she's like i was earlier tonight yes yes and then later somebody asks uh cherry, cherry if she's like a go-go are dancer, a dancer? Yeah. yeah are you a dancer and she's like i was earlier, earlier tonight, tonight. Yep. <laughs> this idea of them leaving behind their past yeah together to together. start a future together yes. I do believe when we were watching it together in that moment when she was leaving El Rey behind because he was dying, mm-hmm. I was like, yes, say goodbye to your heterosexuality, girl. <laughs> yes, yes. Reach, reach up reach to up. your lesbian future. <laughs> yes. um, but of course, it's, it's, I know why that this happened, but I don't like that this happened where 
the sex scene results in a pregnancy because he never misses he never misses like first of all gagging gagging sounds right yeah that's another one of those recurring lines where he's like i know i shit those zombies because i never miss miss. yeah i never miss with my gun and as i i mentioned to you earlier like off mic it's just like i hate that like he has like knowledge of her body she doesn't have yeah i don't like, like that you don't fucking know yeah but no he never misses. he does but and, and i was like right. at least it's a daughter at least it's a girl yeah, that feels significant and then that then, it's like the new future is for women yeah and like they do she does get to keep the like two against the world thing it's like but what about you and dr dakota block what if yeah. you were the two against the world i like, mean what if, what if it was like your whole group against the world maybe it doesn't need it to be just two people yeah. yeah maybe you should rethink how you imagine like familial structures um <laughs> i mean everything else is going to shit you yeah, know might as I well know. it's a new future girl have some, have some deep thoughts on that yeah, yeah. um <laughs> Since we just talked about Mexico, should we start talking about like what borders do in this film? Uh, let's talk about borders. Cause yeah, I want to because uh, we we mentioned that where they go in Mexico is Tulum, yeah, which is a really beautiful city that I've had the pleasure of being in. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, like, yeah, I can think of way worse places to wait out a zombie apocalypse. Yeah, tell me about borders. Well, I think so. As I think you mentioned, and same for me, not super familiar with Robert Rodriguez's work. Spy Kids and From Dust Till Dawn. It's my understanding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's my understanding, though, just from what I've read, that like as a Mexican-American, mm-hmm. a lot of his films feature like border, like being near the border yeah. with Mexico, that that's like a common theme that comes up in his work, which, yeah, fair. Makes sense. Yeah, totally. And like this film, it's definitely a case where this is right here between Texas and Mexico. Mm-hmm. And that the big idea is that, well, this town has gone to shit. This chemical toxin, whatever it is, is going to keep spreading. So you got to get to Mexico, get your back against the water, then you'll be safe. Like, that's the plan. Right. Starting about halfway through the movie is mm-hmm. just to get to Mexico, get your back against the water, be safe. Even though there's water in Texas, but whatever. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, yeah. And that was a thought that I had. I was like, is Mexico really safer? I understand getting your back against the water, but it sounds like this idea of like getting over the border will be safer. Mm-hmm. But it's like there wasn't actually a physical border. Like that was a political border. Yeah. But it wasn't a physical border. Yeah. I was like. I, I wasn't sure. I actually had to look up the history of, like, you know, the wall that we yeah, have, the border oh wall. Yeah. And I was like, because, like, well, there is sort of a physical barrier there, but it's not, like, impermeable. People are getting through it all the time. Right. And what function does the Rio Grande serve? Like, it's not a total border, but, like, doesn't that river also serve yeah. as, like, a little bit of, a, yeah. like, a physical border? Yeah. yeah. And also because this is taking place in a different time, I, like, wasn't super sure about it. And apparently, yeah. like, our current sort of wall situation really began in, like, the 90s. Yeah. That's when we really picked up starting to, like, build a wall yeah. to separate us from Mexico because yeah. of immigration, scary immigrants. Blah. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, um, I do think it's kind of interesting that the uh, the Secure Fence Act, okay, which authorized the construction of 700 miles of wall along the border, which was, like, the biggest project, okay, which was signed by Bush okay. um, in 2007. Oh! And then this movie came out about six months later. Yes, it did. So this would have been before we had like a major wall project going on. There would have been some fences there, sort of inconsistent fencing going on. Uh So I'm just sort of like, yeah, getting across the border will be a little bit safer. But like there isn't actually a physical border there. Yeah. You know, and then that they end up specifically in Tulum. Tulum. Yeah. Is that how you pronounce that? That's how I say it. Yeah. Tulum. Okay. Yeah. Which according to World History Encyclopedia. Mm hmm. Like, the word comes from the idea of, like, wall. Oh. 
or like fence or something like that. Yeah. Because it has those I three. Think I knew that. Yes. Those three fortified. We see it at the end of the film. We see yeah. those three, that old ruin where it has yeah. these three fortified walls and then its back is to the Caribbean Sea. Yeah. I think. I've been right. there. It's fucking gorgeous. Yeah. 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 And do the walls look hard to get by? I mean, honestly, what looks hard to get by is is the coastline. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and that no. was why they were talking about it. Yeah. It's like, well, no zombies are going to come by the coast. Mm-mm. Yeah. No, and, and I was kind of looking at it, and it's um, it was one of the last cities built and inhabited by Maya people. Maya, yeah. It was abandoned a few decades after Spain began to occupy the region. Yeah. Makes sense. And then uh, both its coastal and its land routes converged sort of at Tulum making it like this important trading city. They had people coming up the coast and along the roads, mm. sort of all coming to this area as like becoming an important trading city. Mm-hmm. So just like in general, this feels like a very significant place in terms of like the intersections of borders. Yeah. Where it's like right there between land and coast. Yeah. It's like right there between these two different time periods. It's right there between like these different types of peoples that are kind of fighting over this area. Yeah. And it's also literally bordered in, you know? Yeah. So yeah. So because of that and just sort of like the idea of like that actual physical border and how getting to Mexico was so important. I also started thinking about it like metaphorically because I can't stop myself and yeah. because this is where we have deep thoughts. Yeah. Um, and so I started thinking about like what are the other things that we like like to think have really permanent, stable borders but that in this film get really questioned. Mm-hmm. And I think the really big one is like, what's the line between alive and dead? Yeah, of course. Zombies. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, in general, yeah. zombies bring up that question because what is it to be undead? Yeah. And I think this one does it even more because these zombies retain a certain amount of like personhood. Right. Or at least for a while we have like Dr. Block. Yeah. He's still like... He's still talking. He's yeah. still specifically going after his wife. Yeah, his personality, his personality as an individual is still very much still yeah. there. Yeah, that's Lieutenant true. Muldoon can keep talking for a while after he takes off his mask and starts changing. You know. Yeah. So it's like, where is this actual line that happens where it's like you become infected and you become this kind of mindless zombie who just wants to start like eating and killing? Because some of them seem more like that, and some of the other ones seem to still have at least some degree of thought. Like some of them run away when they see the helicopter coming to slice them up. That's right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. So it's like how they much are these people? They can recognize like a threat to their yeah well being. So yeah. it's like how much are these people still alive? Right. Are they all still alive and just need to be cured? Are they dead already? Yeah. And the infection has taken them over. Like we don't really know. I'm gonna be honest. This is making me think of Evil Dead. Yeah. I know we're not talking about Evil Dead right now, but yeah. since we did just go see it, right? Yeah. Like to me, the demons are rather the deadites, right? In Evil yeah. Dead, like. They're, the point of the demon is to torture the living, both mm-hmm. physically and, like, mentally, mm-hmm. you know? And so, like, when the people in Evil Dead, like, kind of, like, come through as they're being possessed, like, um, mm-hmm. what Ellie says in Evil Dead Rise is, like, don't let him take my babies or whatever, yeah, you yeah. know, is, like, probably her, like, last minute. But then, like, a lot of the deadites, like, will kind of fuck with the other people, you know, like, like, pretend to be. Yeah, yeah. Like, mommy's with the maggots now, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm just like, well, we don't actually know that. Like, that demon could just be fucking with you. Yeah. You know? That it's, yeah. yeah, I think that's a common thing both with demons yeah. and with zombies, yeah. which we talked about have some crossover. That you're sort of always stuck in that place of, like, is this still the person that I once loved? Right. Or are they completely gone? Can I get them back? Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. think that definitely, they don't really spend any time thinking about it in this movie. No. But I think it's there even more so than in, like, some other zombies where it's, like, they are immediately so mindless. Yeah. They just want to kill and eat, you know? Like, yeah, in this one. Yeah, brains, yeah. Yeah, in this one, they're like, no, they're still talking. They're still, 
making references to like things that happened that morning like the block's kid is playing with his toys and he has like a little toy that like wants to eat the brain and gain your knowledge knowledge. yeah and then later dr bill block tells his wife that he wants to eat her brain and gain her knowledge so it's like is that him or is it like an echo yeah you know and we just like don't know and the movie just doesn't answer that no it really doesn't which I find interesting. Yeah. But again, like, I think there's so much that the movie doesn't answer. Yeah. Right? Like, you don't get to figure out what El Rey's past is all right. about, you know? Right. Which is another border that I actually think is really interesting mm. that really shows up with El Rey is sort of that line between soldier and criminal. Because mm. they're mm-hmm. both, like, killers. Yeah. El Rey never changes from being this, like, gun-wielding, super good with a knife killer. Yeah. And soldiers can do some shady shit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, like, the whole first half of the film, the sheriff isn't trusting El Rey. You know, he has this criminal past. But then it's like, oh, no, he actually has this, like, soldier past. Mm -hmm. So it's the same person doing the same things. But now it's, like, super respectable and good. Right. Yeah. But it's, like, the same. Maybe because, like, it, it it's happening under, like, the protection of, like, an established government. Right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And it's happening with, like, like a greater goal in mind. Right, yeah. Rather yeah, than. That, like, capacity he has for killing suddenly yeah. is now making him a hero. Right. Instead of a criminal. Yes. And then he gets like a soldier's death, you know. And it's like what you said with yeah. um, what you were talking about earlier actually was a good example of this too. Where um, Lieutenant Muldoon is when he gets killed. Yes. He's like, I was just doing it for my men. Yes. Yeah. I was just being a soldier. Yeah. And yeah, Ray is like, God bless you and thank you for your service to your country. Yeah. Right? It's like you still get to be this honorable soldier even though you just were responsible for the death of this entire town. Yeah. You wiped out this entire town. And and honestly, like, at least the what I get from the ending, the last scene is, like, they don't get it under control. Yeah, and it's, like, sweeping at least the nation. In Mexico. Yeah, yeah it's like, getting down the continent. Yeah, yeah. So it's, like, you may have, like, either purposefully or accidentally caused a zombie apocalypse. Yeah, but, like, God bless you. And yeah, your, and thank you for, for your, your service. service. Like, yeah. mm, I yeah, don't know. So that's, like, another interesting yeah. sort of, like... These are two opposite things, but are they actually opposites? No, but the way we're going to treat them is completely opposite. Two sides of the same coin. It's like, yeah, it's the same idea, right? But like two different perspectives of the same idea. I'm yeah. Like, how different is that really? You know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I venture. Not really. Not very. Yeah. You know? Another dichotomy that we get that we've really already touched on, so I'm not going to talk about it more, but I mm-hmm. just want to like drive home that this is one, mm-hmm. is that like we have that masculine versus feminine yes obviously going on and yeah. this idea that this is like a line that we don't cross this is the masculine and this is the feminine you know yes like this is a very masculine film but it's like a very toxic masculinity yeah. that i don't think we're necessarily it's like cool in some spots but we're not necessarily i don't think supposed to like wholly root for it because in the end it really is like the women who start out True. in this position of being like the victims and always like having no option but to keep running away you know Mm -hmm. they're the ones who end up like saving the day and having the new society you know and it's really and being able to have the kids that will be the next generation in their new society yeah 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 yeah. and those are a girl child you know Yeah. yeah yeah so I just yeah I feel like it has a lot to say about like the kind of gender binary of like having these like the men are like hyper masculine and super cool and the women are like sexy victims yeah but it's like that's not really what ends up playing out in the film. So it like, it's like kind of questioning it. Yeah. And how like the men don't really know how to interact with women other than to see them as like people who need to be protected. Yeah. Or people who need to be subdued. Or controlled. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. like even El Rey is apparently very controlling and possessive over Cherry. Yeah. According to her. Yeah. You know? And that's like the good healthy relationship that we have. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. 
And that like the attempted rape scene happens because Cherry sort of talks back to yeah. the soldier initially. Yeah. And he needs to like put her in her place. Yeah, yeah. You know? Well, what does what does he say? He says like do you want to say fuck you to me? And she's like, not at this moment. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I love that she's like reserving the right, like putting that in her pocket. Yeah. Like I might want to say fuck you to you, but not yeah. right now, but I'm yeah. just going to keep yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also the line of like, she's very funny in this film. She's, she's just a very funny person. Yeah. And yeah, because she does stab him with her like little wooden leg. She yeah. has the line that's like, you want to give me wood, but yeah. I'm the one giving you wood. Yeah. That it's like this thing of like the men constantly being threatened by the woman getting these like positions of power but then it's like it isn't actually cherry taking the role of being like the one in power and like being powerful over men that's like a really big deal what i feel like was a really big empowering moment for her is actually when she has her first conversation with dakota where they talk about reach up things seem bad right now yeah reach out to each other yeah become allies it's like when she becomes like and an help ally each other out. with Dakota and then with El Rey, actually. Yeah. That she actually, they all work together to solve it. And that it's like not really a power dynamic. Right. They're all working towards a common goal. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really where the actual solution lies. Yeah. So I don't know. There's just, yeah, there's some interesting gender stuff that I felt like we had to talk about, which we already have, but yeah. I just wanted to emphasize it right here near the end of our episode. Yeah. And the last one, which you brought up. Yeah bisexuality oh uh, yes yeah psycho yeah. bisexuals yeah yeah because i mean dakota is probably bisexual we don't she never says explicitly yeah. we don't know but she's married to a man and she's yeah. had at least one girlfriend so yeah. like that's we can assume she's something like that yeah i'm bringing up here with borders because mm-hmm. does that make sense oh yeah which is it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's like are you gay or straight yeah, yeah, you yeah. know and, and where's just, the line yeah and yeah. i think it's interesting that dakota i don't know that this film is doing it on purpose but, like, statistically, mm-hmm. bisexual people across the gender spectrum mm-hmm. are statistically more likely to be victims of mm. domestic abuse than gay or straight people. Oh, is that true? Yeah. Oh, interesting. And, like, there's a lot of um, ideas about this. Oh, I was sure. reading um, an article on Mashable about, like, different studies on bisexual people and their relationship to, like, violence, domestic abuse and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that, like, a lot of it probably comes from a lot of biphobic beliefs we have in our society sure. about this is going to sound familiar if you've seen the movie. Bisexual people are, like, hypersexual. Mm-hmm. They're untrustworthy. They're or, more likely to cheat. Or not actually bisexual. Yeah, or they're just, like, confused. They're confused. lying yeah. about it. Yeah, they're yeah, untrustworthy. Yeah. They're confused. Yeah. Yeah, they don't really know what they want. Yeah. So, like, abusive partners can use all of that biphobic bullshit as an excuse to, like, control and surveil their partner. Mm-hmm. Dr. Bill Block feels like he's entitled to see what his wife has on her phone right. because she's a bisexual who might be, like, cheating on him with a woman. Uh-huh. You know? And it so happens that he's right in this case, but, like, he was already an abusive piece of shit. You yeah. Know? But he's, like, using that as an and excuse. And Fergie seemed very nice. Yeah. Just because <laughs> yeah. you think that your partner might be cheating on you doesn't give you a right to, like search through your partner's phone right i like to try to control them or like see everything that they're doing Mm -hmm. you know but it becomes this excuse that he uses right or that like because a part their partner is bisexual that opens it up for them to be even even more possibly uh, possibly even more unfaithful yeah because there's a larger pool yeah, yeah. it's this constant a perceived like, larger pool. yeah it's this yeah. constant like biphobic idea that yeah. it's like oh bisexuals just will sleep with anybody yeah which is like no that's not true at all 
And, I mean. But then also, I mean, there's also that. And also just like the, just the, you know, really shitty representation in media of bisexuals is either just like not existing at all or mm-hmm. being like psycho. Yeah. Uh, promiscuous, you know, yeah. incapable of, of yeah. relationships. Or like, you know? if it's a character where we are supposed to like like them and root for them, they'll explicitly be like, well, I don't really care for labels. Or they like won't say what they mm-hmm. are. In this case, we don't ever know exactly yeah. how Dakota event. Which you know. in real life, I'm like, yeah, I get yeah, it. Yeah, in real life, that's yeah. cool. In media where we only have like this really kind of like psycho We have an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah. 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 It's like, mm, maybe you can just let her say let's that. She's say it. Yeah. bisexual um, and it's fine. But then that also makes me think of like, especially talking about gender roles that like and and the gender roles in this film of like men feeling the need to like control and dominate other people in their lives regardless of those people's genders right like Mm -hmm. thinking about how how I feel like also in media uh, bisexual women and like their relationships or interest in other women are downplayed as like not a threat to a heterosexual relationship I'm thinking about uh, Katy Perry's I Kissed a Girl. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, my boyfriend doesn't mind. Yeah. You know, I'm just like, you kissed idea. somebody. Yeah, but the idea is that it was there to be, like, titillating. Yeah. To- I'm thinking, actually, specifically in this film, yeah. when we're at the Go-Go Club. Oh, yeah. One of the first things we see is two yes. of the Go-Go dancers yes. making out. out with yeah. each other. And their boss, their manager, yeah. Skip, Mark, Scott, whatever his name is. <laughs> um, he's, Spike. Yeah. Fido. Whoever. You know, whatever his name yeah. is. Um, he doesn't matter Uh, but he tells these two women who are like making out maybe in a relationship whatever we don't know he tells them to save it for the The stage yeah so yeah it's like this idea that women's sexuality is only in service of men yeah so we explicitly have in this film like bisexuality or women's sexuality with other women as this thing that's like treated as like a manipulation or a performance that's only meant to turn men on or it's like it's a threat to manhood yeah and it's suggesting that men aren't necessary. Or a and at the end to of, traditional values. Yeah. yeah. And at the end of this movie, the men kind of aren't necessary. The women are running shit. That's true. So it's like, yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. It's kind of cool. It is cool. Yeah. Yeah. Do we want to like that ending? Yeah. Since we talked about the ending, do we want to now play a game? I do. I really, really do. Okay. So what I did was I made a, a Mad Lib for a sort of grindhouse exploitation B-movie type Fun. thing. I like that. Um, I mostly based it on the trailer for um, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, uh-huh, yes. which was kind of a parody of exploitation films. Mm-hmm. So I figured it would be a good trailer to sort of come up with like a lot of the basic things that come up. I, I changed a little bit of it. And then I took out all of the like big main descriptor words. Sure. And now we're going to fill them in ourselves. Oh my gosh. I, have to, you I can't remember the last time I did a Mad Lib. I know. It's been I a hot minute. Five. All right, <laughs> let's know. do it. Maybe it'll be done and we'll never do it again, but we're doing it now. Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. So the first thing I need is, okay, some of my things are kind of vague and weird, but I need like a scary descriptor, Ooh. like a little word in front of other words that each yeah. time you hear it, you're like, that's something scary. How about ferocious? Ferocious. Yeah. And then I just need like a plural noun. Uh, lesbians. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ferocious lesbians. Okay. I need a, a time of year. Oh, um, fall equinox. Okay. Getting fancy with it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. It's best. Okay. I need a location. Oh, Tulum, Mexico. <laughs> Tulum. Okay. Um, give me another adjective. Another descriptor word. A descriptor word. Um, purple. Okay. I just need a name for like a person. Oh, um, Spike. Spike. Back to Spike. <laughs> okay. Give me a blue collar job. Oh, uh, plumber. Okay, cool. Plumber. 
Um, give me an object that could be used as a weapon. Oh, but not necessarily. Yeah, that isn't already a weapon, but could be one. Like a hammer. Yeah, yeah. a hammer. Give me a, a hobbyist, a type of hobbyist. A hobbyist? Yeah, just like a hobby. Like an apiarist? Like someone who keeps bees? Yeah, okay. beekeeper. That's so funny because when I was like <laughs> thinking of this for myself, my thought was beekeeper. I just like the word a- I just like the word apiarist. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Give me another adjective. I have a lot of adjectives. Oh boy. Okay. Uh, person, place, or thing? No. no a describing a word. word yeah. I know what nouns and adjectives are. Uh, a describing word. Uh, hairy. Hairy. Yeah. Okay. Uh, a past tense verb. Mm, jumped. Give me a profession. Any type of job. Biochemical engineer. Ooh. I have to write all of that now. Sorry. The little spot is not picking up. <laughs> Well, Eng- biochem <laughs> engine. Eng- <Yeah. laughs> okay, give me just like a type of person. Whatever that means to you. How about like type A? Ooh. How about a type of criminal? Ooh. Uh, arsonist. Ooh. Saucy. Yeah. Okay. Um, I just need like a community. Like an intramural softball team. Ooh. <laughs> Why do you keep giving me big things though? I'm sorry. <laughs> Soft. Blue <laughs> team, right? Really tidy. <laughs> okay, give me a verb with an ing ending. Whatever you call those type of ver- verbs. Aren't those called gerunds? I don't know. <laughs> I'm the English major. I don't know. <laughs> I'm the one trying to learn Spanish. So, um, like shooting. Okay, last one. I just think a holiday. Oh, Arbor Day. Arbor Day. Yeah. Okay, are okay. you ready for this? I'm so ready. So our movie is Attack of the Ferocious Lesbians. <laughs> This fall equinox, death and destruction come to Tulum. Vicious purple lesbians are haunting the streets and no one is safe. Purple lesbians. I don't know what that means. Uh, The only hope for survival is Spike, a plumber with a deaf wish and a hammer. (laughs) Aided by a sexy beekeeper, Spike must unravel the hairy mystery of the deadly lesbians before it is too late. Can they save the day before they are jumped <laughs> by whoever or whatever is controlling the lesbians? <laughs> is it the lady biochemical engineer, the greedy type A person, the mysterious arsonist, or does this go all the way to the top? <laughs> It will be a race against time as they battle to save the intramural softball team from nature's perfect shooting machine. <laughs> the ferocious lesbians. You've never seen anything like this. Wait. Are, Coming to theaters this Arbor Day. Are the ferocious lesbians. Yeah. Are they on the intramural softball team? I don't know. <laughs> Is Spike the plumber on the intramural? Is he on the softball team? Yeah, I, I don't know. Purple lesbians. That was good. That was fun. <laughs> yeah. So if somebody wants to make that trailer. Right. Or make that movie. You have our permission. Yep. Attack of the Ferocious Lesbians. That was good. That was okay. good. Yeah. I'll make one for Death Proof. Okay. Yeah. So join us next time when yes. we talk about Death Proof. This has been Deep Thoughts Shallow Plots. Yeah. Shout out to Sound Guy Matt. Follow us on Instagram. Oh, yeah. oh that's right. We have an Instagram. At uh, Deep Thought Shallow Plots. Yeah, all lowercase, no spaces, you know, all that fun stuff. Yeah. And until next time, remember, there's a difference between being frank and being dick. Dick. <laughs>